Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Go to hell! With me, please. I'm going to hell today and I would like you to join me. We won't stay long, just taking a tour, taking a tour of Florentine Dante's version of Christian hell as he wrote about it in his 1321 epic poem, The Divine Comedy. One of the most influential literary works ever written in the Western world. Dante depicted hell as being made up primarily of nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth where various types of sinners face a variety of horrifying punishments from sitting in lakes full of shit slush to being bitten by magical snakes to being literally chewed up in Satan's mouth for eternity, the punishments Dante came up with were nothing if not imaginative. Dante's depictions of hell were highly influential to Christian theology, which has influenced Western culture significantly. When you picture hell, if you picture hell, you likely picture imagery influenced by Dante. Ever wonder where many of the dirtbags whose lives we've explored in other Time Suck episodes go when they die? Dante had some thoughts. There were specific circles reserved for the likes of the Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer, Killer Clown John Wayne Gacy, the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, the co-ed killer Ed Kemper, and other serial killers. Ever wonder if they're getting punished somewhere by a demon or some other kind of monster? I do. Dante clearly wondered about that type of thing as well. He placed a lot of people he either knew or knew of and didn't care for into hell. He seemed to clearly be pleased with his vengeful thoughts of their eternal suffering. Totally get it. I've entertained thoughts of vengeance for as long as I can remember having uh, thoughts. They're pretty fun fantasies, I gotta say. In Dante's hell, the sinners of each circle are punished for eternity in a fashion fitting their crimes. The first circle is for baptized, or I'm sorry, unbaptized, virtuous pagans, the second for the lustful, the third for gluttons, and so on. All this came out of Dante's mind, a very religious and pretty twisted mind. And when he wrote it, pretty angry and bitter mind. Dante grew up in Florence when it was a city-state and basically a war zone between two opposing political factions. Dante would later enter politics himself and then be exiled when a rival group came to power. And he was pretty pissed about it. And he wrote the Divine Comedy from his exile. 
Dante's political enemies would make their way into his inferno. If he couldn't punish them in life, at least he could punish them on the written page and have them suffer immensely down with the devil below. His epic poem was his personal shit list full of people he thought should burn in hell for whatever reason. Also his personal burn book, a chance for him to show off how good he was at poetry compared to the all-time masters. It was a sweeping declaration of the supremacy of the Christian God and maybe also the first buddy road trip story. So let's go to hell. Join me down below in this week's shit-covered, fire-raining, monster-filled Hitchhiker's Guide to the Underworld edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable Jangles, glory be to Triple M. Nimrod needs our help today. Uh, he may be stuck in Dante's hell right now. You'll, you'll meet him later in the show. Uh, I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Lucifina's masseuse and waxer, and you are listening to Time Suck. A uh, quick reminder, got a lot of show to get to today. Before, uh, before we do, quick reminder that uh, thanks to you space lizards who support the show on Patreon, uh, Bad Magic Productions donated 12200 to nokidhungry.org. Uh, also, thank you to the Roberts and Annabelles over on Scared to Death for uh, helping with this charity donation. Keeping kids fed. Fed. There we go. I don't know what I just said. Uh, thanks for helping us do that. To find out more or to donate more yourself, uh, you can go to nokidhungry.org. Link in the episode description. Now for a quick message for uh, any Coeur d'Alene slash Spokane, Washington area suckers, dudes specifically, uh, in need of a barber. My buddy Michael Awesome guy, the owner of Mavericks in downtown CDA at 418 Lakeside in the Innovation Den by CDA Coffee. Great vibe, great barbers, beards, stashes, fades, whatever you need. It's open a new location on Ramsey. And that same little strip mall is uh, Pokey Works and Mangia Pizza. Great cuts by great dudes. Go to mavcuts.com to book with Michael or any of the other great barbers there. So easy to set up an appointment. Uh, Kyler and I have been going there for a few years now. It's always solid. I've been telling him forever, like, let me help you. Let me promote you. He's like, no, it's fine. It's fine. But now he's got a new shop. He's like, well, okay. So go, go check it out. Uh, new edition of the Time Suck Serial Killer Yearbook Series in the store today at badmagicmerch.com. A sexy cow lover, Yahim Krolti, certified piece of shit. Pretty sure wearing it gets you 50% off uh, whatever you order from Kroll's Cafe, the world's most disturbing diner. So check that out. And that's it. And now, now for something a little different. We don't offer cover great works of literature on Time Suck, uh, though we have covered written texts before, like the Lost Books of the Bible, way back in episode 83. Today's episode of Dante's Inferno will probably feel more akin to the previous sucks on the Greek or Egyptian gods than it will to that episode, though. While Dante Alighieri certainly didn't invent Christian theology or even its symbolism, a lot of what many consider to be standard Christian hell imagery comes from the divine comedy and not from the Bible. Dante gave a really dense book, the Bible, that's mostly instructions and genealogies, a compelling narrative, the story of one man's journey through hell and then purgatory and into heaven, an attempt to both find his missing love and understand the nature of divinity. Let's burn, meat sacks. It's Inferno time. Dante's Inferno, the first of a three-part epic poem chronicling a journey through the afterlife. Three parts together, the Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven make up the whole work to Divine Comedy. It was written in the early 14th century by one Dante Alighieri. 
It is believed that he started to write it prior to 1308 and completed it just before his death in 1321. Because there were so few records back then, exact dates are uncertain. So why did it take him so many years to write this big epic poem? Fucking laziness! He was a lazy, pity party sad boy who filled his inkwell with tears and mixed those tears with his sad boy poopy pants juice to make some stinky sad boy ink. Bet you didn't know that, did you, literary nerds? That was pretty crazy, and it's not true. We don't know exactly why it took him so long. Probably partially because he had a real hard time finding an Apple store or Best Buy or somewhere else, you know, where one could buy a laptop. Couldn't even find an old Sears catalog to order some kind of typewriter from. He couldn't even find an old five and dime to buy himself some whiteout to make some corrections. Dude had to quill and ink it, which I'm sure made the revision process just a wee bit tedious. God, that would be tedious. I think about how many notes, you know, uh, like revisions, edits I make every single week for Time Suck. How many, how many parchment rough drafts that would be if I had to do it by hand. If I had to quill and ink that shit, oh man, we'd be kicking out about mm, two episodes a year. Uh, speaking of parchment, that was another thing that made writing hard back then. Paper didn't exist as it does now. You couldn't just go buy a big ream of printer paper or typewriter paper from the drugstore. Paper wasn't commonly found in Europe until around 1450, well over a century after Dante died. Before then, it was sheepskin parchment or calfskin vellum. Had to find a trusty vellum dealer. Pelts were first soaked in a lime solution to loosen the fur, which was then removed. While wet on a stretcher, the skin was scraped using a knife with a curved blade. As the skin dried, the parchment or vellum maker uh, adjusted the tension so the skin remained taut. The cycle of scraping and stretching and totting, making it taut, uh, was repeated over several days until the desired thinness had been achieved. Such a pain in the ass to create just a few sheets of parchment. Because of all the labor involved, because you couldn't just slatter coddle, cattle, excuse me, and sheep indiscriminately to make more paper when you needed it, it was really expensive. I'm guessing a lot of ancient Middle Ages writers made it to the end of their books, you know, or poems, whatever. Then they had an idea that would make their story way better. Like, oh, oh I should have introduced this character. Oh, that's where I should have went. And then they thought about how it would take fucking months or years to rewrite it and then just did a little internal, ah, fuck it. No one was ever going to know what it was supposed to be anyway. Good enough. Uh, so why did Dante write a giant book? It would have taken so much effort to write, essentially because he was pissed off and he suddenly had a lot of time on his hands. He'd been exiled from Florence, the city-state, the republic he loved so dearly. He was venting. He was also quarreling with some of his fellow exiles. He was alone, out of work, pretty bitter towards a lot of different people. So he wrote about a lot of people he didn't like, burning or otherwise being tortured in hell. Let it out, Dante, let it out. Sounds like fun. I bet he had a pretty good time writing it. Uh, literary revenge and judgment, only part of his motivation. Uh, he was also confused about how he had ended up in exile, how he ended up alone later in his life. He was trying to wrap his head around it all. He's experiencing a real big, how the hell did I get here? He's trying to make sense of everything, including, you know, his faith. He was having a sort of existential crisis. He was trying to get his head around the meaning of life and religion, you know, the religion he based his life on. And he also wrote it because he was a lovesick sad boy. His giant poem was part true love story. He'd been haunted by a long-held infatuation with the woman he barely knew. And he wrote a book about literally traveling through hell to try to find her in heaven. Whatever motivated him, the book he ended up writing now widely considered to be the greatest product of Italian literature and one of the greatest literary achievements of all time. It would inspire many a Renaissance artist, and their art continues to inspire us to this day. Very important book. And Dante didn't make a dime on it. How about that shit? He's believed to have uh, only finished, you know, the, the book shortly before he died, around the age of 56. Even if he had finished it many years before he died, still wouldn't have made any money on it. 
at least not directly off of book sales. Isn't that weird to think about some of these historical things? Like the printing press hadn't been invented yet when Dante wrote Inferno. Wouldn't be invented until 1440. Wouldn't be used commercially until 1450, 130 years after he died. Divine Comedy wasn't first printed, actually printed, printed until 1472. Before the printing press, copies of books were generally made by monks who made copies one by one, scribing each copy by hand on that damn parchment and vellum. Real hard to build up a nice library back in Dante's day. For the printing press, it would cost more than an average laborer's entire year's wages to buy a single book. The Divine Comedy for many years was for royalty, teachers at prestigious academies, either the wealthy or those supported by someone wealthy. Most people didn't own books at all. Like if you own, like let's say two or three books, you are living larger than most Middle Ages peasants. What about the Bible? Didn't most peasants at least own a Bible? Nope, sure didn't. While most of Europe was Christian, it wasn't like being a Christian today. You didn't have a Bible. Your priest had a Bible. You most likely couldn't read if you did come across a Bible. They didn't take a, you know literary censuses back in the Middle Ages, but some sources I found guesstimate that around the time when Dante was alive, right, late 13th, early 14th centuries, only about 10% of European men could read, only about 1% of the women could. Now, but not much of a book market when only about one in 20 people can read and most of those people probably still can't afford to buy a book. Dante was the very rare author in his day, super rare. As rare as it was to be able to read, it was much, much rarer to be able to write. Picture medieval peasants, you know, watching somebody like Dante write and reacting like they're watching a wizard perform some kind of powerful magic. Well, look at that. Look at all the symbols and lines and such. They have meaning, they do. Special magical meaning. My lord swears he can look at those symbols and then words form right in his head. These wizards can make symbols out of the wizards can turn into words. No matter how many times the wizards reads them, the symbols remain. They don't disappear like a regular witch spell or, or something. Yes, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I know that wasn't like an Italian old-timey axe. I don't know what that was. That might have been kind of old-timey British. I, I wanted to try and do an old-timey Italian accent, but I have no idea how they were supposed to speak. No matter what era that somebody existed in Italy, uh, only Mario Brothers comes up when I try and think of an Italian accent. Hey, look at that. Uh, look at all the symbols and the lines and the satchard. How would the meaning do? Uh, a special the meanings. Me lord swears he can look at all of the symbols and then the words are forming and writing his wizard ahead. I don't know why I have to go higher like that too. Refocusing now. How did one make a living writing really expensive to copy books in Italy back at the end of the 13th century, beginning of the 14th century? Uh, really hard question to answer. It doesn't seem like they did make a living, at least not from book sales. You know, there's no Stephen King, Agatha Christie, no Danielle Steele equivalents back then. And if you're thinking, who the hell is Agatha Christie? You know what? The British mystery author who died in 1976 has sold over 2 billion copies of her works. Don't you dare disrespect Agatha. Uh, but Dante didn't have a chance to sell books like Agatha. Like a painter back decades before the Italian, decades before the Italian Renaissance began, an author, philosopher like Dante either had to have a, a wealthy patron willing to literally pay them for their thoughts or they had to, you know, have a job separate from writing, work as a teacher, uh, you know, he worked as a politician, that kind of thing. They wrote for, you know, less for money, more for status. They wrote to impress their fellow well-to-do and intellectual friends, to, to leave a legacy of great works of art behind. And I'm sure they just wrote because they were inspired to do so. You know, they had the means, they wanted to get their thoughts down on paper, had the time to do that, so they did. A little later on, artists like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, they would be paid and paid well for their art. But for authors, not so much, it seems. They, they've, there's been rare poets 
paid, you know, in ancient times by uh, for their writing going way all the way back to ancient Greece, but really not many. So how did Dante actually pay the bills? His father is thought to have been a moneylender, which meant he was likely wealthy. Dante was his firstborn son, which means you know, he probably was given a large inheritance, which could have then allowed him to live as a sort of noble, rubbing shoulders with Florence's elite, drinking wine, discussing the nature of life, arguing the politics of the day. And like I mentioned, he may have uh, made some money as a politician. He was heavily involved in politics, which we'll get into. Luckily for us, whatever the reason, he did write. And while no surviving original manuscripts of the Divine Comedy are known to exist, some 14th century copies are still around. Once it started to get printed long after Dante's death, it became very popular. The Divine Comedy was a huge success because it was simultaneously deeply personal while also reflecting on the nature of the entire world in the afterlife. It connected an era of European thought that consisted mainly of works about church doctrine with a new era of European thought, the Renaissance. Also one of the first literary works written in common Italian in a time when great works were generally written only in Latin in accordance with the church's will. Very few people could read Latin, even less than the very few people who could read anything else. The Divine Comedy was also popular because Dante's big book discussed more than religion. It included references to Italian politics, which would have interested contemporary readers. Dante was very active in his Florence politics, had strong opinions about corruption in the church as well, loyalty to rulers, how to act morally when in positions of power, on and on. He was an opinionated dude. He put a lot of those opinions in the Divine Comedy. Okay. To reset a bit, in this suck, we're going to explore the epic poem genre to learn a bit about the art form that Dante's Inferno and in the entire divine comedy would contribute to. We'll also learn more about who Dante may have been, what was happening in Florence during his life. And then we're going to go step by step to the levels of hell with Dante, his ghost buddy, Virgil, a bunch of monsters, historical personalities, mythological figures, along with a bunch of other people Dante, for one reason or another, didn't care for I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm appreciative of the space lizards for voting this topic in. Uh, let's start with laying down some poetic context. What exactly is an epic poem? Boring. It's fucking boring. Uh, and so were all other poems written a long time ago. So moving along. Now let's go over what Dante's life was like in Florence. Uh, JK. Gosh dang, poets. I was just joking around. Don't get upset. I've heard you're very sensitive. An epic poem is a long often book-length narrative and verse that retells the heroic journey of a single person or a group of people. While Dante's poem did have a rhyme scheme, many epic poems don't rhyme at all. They are all written in some kind of verse scheme, giving them, you know, different literary structure than a non-poem story. If I was going to write the Inferno, you know, I would have went harder on the rhyming than Dante did, but that's just me. I would have made the rhymes more evident and obvious and made it more compelling, I think. But that's but I live in 2021, you know? And so I'm a lot smarter than he was. You know, you, you get it, right? Like literature just comes so much further. It's come so far since he died. It's not, not, it's not fair to compare a poet like me, you know, like something I could just do in a few seconds with what took him over a decade. Like here's something I wrote in less than one minute. Deep down in hell's underground, the devil and his demons like to ground and pound. Souls get chomped on and it's always too hot. Nuts get kicked, and no one owns a yacht. You might get your nipples flicked in a way you don't like. You won't get any water to drink, not even after a really long ride on your bike. That's the devil for you. He's a real piece of shit. And if you don't like that, the tough titty, because hell don't quit. <laughs> you fucking kid, do you hear that? Dropping fire bars. Shit. Took me less than one minute to write that. It's way more compelling than Inferno, you know? You get that I'm being ridiculous, right? Okay. Uh, back to epic poems. 
Epic poems are very old. The oldest story ever written that we know of was an epic poem, the Epic of Gilgamesh. More on that here soon. Many of the world's oldest written narratives are in epic form. Like mythology, and often epic poems do deal with mythology, epics were some of the most powerful tools used by ancient rulers when building the reputations of their cities, societies, empires, religions. They were powerful expressions of the rise and fall of those organizations preserved long after the peoples and the government structures were gone. There were stories to be told and retold over and over by one storyteller after another to build legends out of. They typically chronicle a time beyond living memory when extraordinary men and women dealt with gods or other superhuman forces, and gave shape to the mortal universe for their descendants where we now live. The epic poem tries to help the poet and their audience to understand themselves as a people or a nation, and they've been created all over the world. Ancient poets have used them to reflect on enormous themes, war, betrayal, sex, adventure, humanity, originally composed by bards and memorized so they could be recited when people were hanging out indoors during the cold months of the winter. In ancient times, they were passed down orally as in the case of the ancient Greeks. Epic poems tend to go heavy on the battle scenes, often listing out weapons and the actions of the troops in great detail. Got to pe keep people entertained while also reinforcing the values of victory and strength. Many of them, in addition to the divine comedy, also featured a ton of trips to the underworld. We looked at something like 20 epic poems. I'm not going to go over all of them today. Don't worry. Uh, almost all of them took a side quest to the underworld at some point. We meat sacks have always been fascinated by death and darkness. Unsurprisingly, epic poems could be and were used sometimes or oftentimes as a type of propaganda, uh, painting one culture, empire, city, whatever, as noble, heroic, aligned with the gods, while the rival is painted as evil. Horrific, in need of destruction. You know, they were ancient halftime motivational. Let's get out there and rip their fucking heads off. Do it for Rudy. Like those kind of stories, you know? Let's fight like legends. Make the heroes of the ancient stories proud. Tonight we dine in hell, Sparta. Like that kind of shit. So let's take a look at some of the most interesting ones written before Inferno. Oldest epic poem that has survived to the modern era. The oldest surviving work of literature in the world. The Epic of Gilgamesh. The story of at least, uh, at least around 4,000 years old, older than the Bible. The oldest surviving tablets date back to 1800 BCE. The oldest Old Testament text fragments on some pottery shards date back to around 1000 BCE. Uh, based on an Assyrian king, the Epic of Gilgamesh recounts the travels of a young god king named Gilgamesh, no surprise there, whose arrogant practices hurt his populace until a wild man created by a goddess challenged his power. It was composed in ancient Mesop Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and used many of the narrative conventions of epic poetry, things like the idea of a quest. In this case, Gilgamesh goes on a quest for eternal life, overcoming monsters, and then there is divine intervention. And written on old clay tablets, back when carrying around just one book could really fuck your back up. All right? Oh, it's quite a limp you got there, Bob. What the hell happened? Oh, fucked my back up real good. Tried carrying a book by myself for about five miles on a hike. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey are probably the most well-known epic poems in the Western world. The earliest fragments of these poems come from the 4th century BCE, but it's believed to have been written in the 8th century BCE based on linguistic and other archaeological evidence. We covered these tales briefly in our Greek gods suck. Uh, very little is known about their author Homer, thought to have uh, written both poems. The events kicking off the Iliad, though the actual poem begins in the middle of the Trojan War, uh, gets started when Helen of Sparta, the most beautiful woman in the world, is abducted by Paris of Troy, right? If a straight dude is writing a big-ass story, good chances, good odds, it's going to be about a girl. 
<laughs> dudes chasing our boners around since the beginning of human history. Hail Lucifina. Uh, war follows the abduction and the Greeks and the Trojans fight the Trojan War for 10 years until they're in a stalemate. The Greeks aren't strong enough to penetrate Troy's walls and the Trojans aren't strong enough to repel them. The Greeks' best fighter is Achilles who's told before he arrives at Troy by the gods that he could either go to Troy and die young as a hero or die of old age, but without fame or recognition. And he chooses death. death young death, but with glory. Yeah, he chooses, uh, you know, the, the second, uh, making the Iliad, or chooses that, sorry, making the Iliad an important text about free will, destiny, about creating one's legacy. Uh, these themes would come into play in many epic poems that would follow. The Iliad covers the last few weeks of the Trojan War, begins with the famous lines, Sing, goddess, Achilles' rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds, as Zeus' will was done. Begin with the clash between Agamemnon, the Greek warlord and godlike Achilles. It's pretty cool, I guess. You know, it's just not as rhymy, again, as what I would do, but different times, different styles, you know? Things have just improved since then. Like, just kind of spitballing here, something quick. I probably would have wrote something better. Like, Achilles was a dude who could get really, really mad. If he came at you with a sword, you wouldn't be very glad. He fights so good because he's a god. That's why he has a really rock hard bod. He'll send you to hell, which will not be swell. He'll cut off your head, which will make you super fucking dead. The end. I think I'm getting the hang of this epic poem stuff. I mean, I didn't even put hardly any effort into that. I think it's just, you heard it. <laughs> Undeniable. <sighs> anyway, sorry. I could just, you know, don't want to make this all about me and my poetry skills. Uh, the Iliad ends with the death of the Trojans' best warrior, Hector, at Achilles' hand. We know that Troy will soon fall and that Achilles will also soon die. The Odyssey is the sequel to the Iliad and it follows the warrior Odysseus as he tries to find his way home from Troy across the Peloponnesian Sea. For our next epic poem, we head to India. A lot of challenging words coming up. Written around 350 BCE, the Mahabharata is one of the longest pieces of literature of all time and a pivotal literary text in the formation of Hindu identity. The longest epic poem known has been described as the longest poem ever written. Highly recommend that when venues open back up, you go to a poetry open mic and you insist on reciting it in its entirety. Its longest version contains over 200,000 individual verse lines and long prose passages. At about 1.8 million words in total, the Mahabharata is roughly 10 times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. The average novel today, about 90,000 words. The uncut version of The Stand, Stephen King's largest single book, roughly 500,000 words. It's about four times as big as that. Big poem, big, big poem. The oldest surviving copy of the Mahabharata, the Spitzer Manuscript, written on palm leaf fragments, comes from around 130 CE. Narrated by the sage uh, Vyasa, the poem follows a, follows a human incarnation of the god Vishnu. Uh, the main story revolves around two branches of a family, the Pandavas and the uh, Kauravas, who in the uh, Kurekshetra War battle for the throne of Hastinapur. It follows their descendants dealing with their choices their ancestors made, or the choices. It also contains philosophical and devotional material, such as a discussion of the four goals of life. It also contains one of the first instances of theorizing about just war, right? Speculating about the morality of war. Uh, the author Krishna Dwipayan Visha or Vyasa is himself a character in the epic, something we'll see with Dante as well. The panoramic view of everything from spirituality to morality have had an impact on Indian society for thousands of years. 
Again, sorry if I mangled those words. I, I could find examples of the words being spoken, but I could only find YouTube videos with Indian speakers saying them. And I, I felt like if I tried to emulate those pronunciations, then I end up being like the white dude doing a condescending Apu accent from, from The Simpsons. Then I'm racist somehow, which is a bummer because I'm not. Uh, because uh, it's kind of sad. I can't do it because next to doing an over-the-top Scandinavian accent and over-the-top Indian accent is, you know, it'd be pretty fun. Why do actual racists have to fuck things up for just goofballs like me? I want to just get silly with everything. Uh, now fast forward a few hundred years to the Roman Empire. Here's where the truly propaganda-esque nature of epic poetry comes into play. The Aeneid was written from 30 to 19 BCE at the height of Emperor Augustus's reign in Rome's imperial period and details the creation of the most mighty empire in the world, Rome. August was the heir to Julius Caesar and the first Roman emperor. It was written by the Roman poet Virgil. That name sounds familiar because Virgil shows up as a character in the Divine Comedy. He plays the role of Dante's spirit guide in the afterlife. Virgil's Aeneid is basically a sequel to Homer's Iliad. Picking up after the end of the Trojan War, the Aeneid describes a Trojan warrior, Aeneas, who travels from Troy to Carthage. In Carthage, he has a brief relationship with Queen Dido, which also explains the Roman Empire's later sour relationship with Carthage. The Aeneid presents the rivalry basically as coming from a lover's quarrel. More Dick Chasen. After he abandons Dido, Aeneas travels to Italy, where he founds the city of Rome. Now, how is this propaganda? Virgil's purpose was to write a myth of Rome's origins that would legitimize the success of the Roman Empire. To do that, Virgil works backward, connecting the political and social situations of his own day with the inherited tradition of the Greek gods and heroes to show the former as historically derived from the latter. He basically says, of course, order and virtue, aka Rome, have triumphed over other primitive Italian peoples. It happened in Aeneas's time and it's happening now. Our noble culture is destined to conquer so much. Manifest destiny, Roman style, Wolverines, you know, that kind of shit. Uh, going ahead briefly, clear that Dante loves Virgil. He puts him in his poem as a central figure, but Dante would also use a passage or two of Inferno to flex a bit on Virgil, right? Kind of like I kind of like how I was flexing, you know, on Dante, you know, he would do the same thing to Virgil. Uh, we'll get more into that later. One more epic poem in the lead up to Dante's ma masterpiece. Around 750 CE, an anonymous author composed Beowulf, an epic poem in Old English contain, uh, containing over, or consisting of, excuse me, 3,182 alliterative lines. Some may know Beowulf as Britain's national epic, the oldest surviving English poem from the Anglo-Saxon period. Beowulf gives the reader insight into the history of England and what eventually became British literature. Also celebrated as a national text in most Nordic countries. Deals with the events of the early 6th century, although originally untitled, later named after the Scandinavian hero of Beowulf. Opens in Denmark when King Rothgar's splendid Mead Hall has been ravaged. For 12 years, by nightly visits from an evil monster, Grendel, fucking Grendel, carries off Rothgar's warriors and devours them. How unfortunate. That's a rough dozen years. That's a very stressful 12 years. How are you supposed to run a kingdom if for 12 goddamn years, some dickhead evil monster is constantly devouring your warriors? You can't run an effective empire under that kind of anxiety. Your Highness, the peasants are still awaiting a word from their king regarding how we shall deal with the drought that continues to ravage our kingdom. When will you address them, sire? I don't know, Archduke. Get off my fucking back. I haven't had a lot of time lately to contemplate our impending food shortage. Been a little preoccupied with the evil monster devouring my fucking dudes the past dozen years. Uh, Beowulf, a visitor, offers to help Rothgar out. The night uh, uh, Grendel comes over from the moors, 
or one night he, he comes over from the moors, uh, tears open some heavy doors and devours one of the sleeping goths. He then has to grapple with Beowulf, whose powerful grip he cannot escape. And Grendel has to rip his own fucking arm off to wrench himself free, and he leaves mortally wounded. I'll teach that monster. In the second part of the poem, Beowulf has succeeded to the throne, and 50 years of his peaceful rule have passed. But now, a fire-breathing dragon ravages his land, and the aging Beowulf has to engage it. The fight is long and terrible and a painful contrast to the battles of his youth. He's got stiff back and stuff, imagine. Beowulf is also deserted by his kinsmen, except for a young man named uh, Wiglof. Beowulf kills the dragon, but is mortally wounded, and the poem ends with his funeral rites and a lament for his death. Sad, but awesome. Dying shortly after slaying a dragon. Definitely worse ways to go out. Uh, many would later translate Beowulf, including Lord of the Rings author J.R.R. Tolkien, whose 1926 translation was published in 2014. Oldest surviving copy of this epic comes from around 1000 CE, written on that sweet, sweet parchment. Uh, after looking at some of its predecessors, now let's look back at Dante's Divine Comedy. How is it written? The full poem consists of 100 cantos, a sort of basic structural component, like a paragraph would be in a novel, which are grouped together in three sections called canticles, which sadly have nothing to do with testicles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. There are 33 canto in each canticle and one additional canto contained in the Inferno, which is the introduction to the Divine Comedy. Most of the cantos range in length from about 136 to about 151 lines. The poem has a rhyme scheme called Terza Rima, which consists of rhyming triplets in the form of ABA, BCB, CDC, and so on. You know, not as complex, <laughs> really is, you know, the uh, the examples of poetry that I gave, you know, from, from my, my personal brain. Why do they call it personal break? I don't know. But, you know, from, from, but from one poet to another, you know, respect, Dante. It's, you know, you didn't do what I did, but you did some stuff. Uh, number three plays a big role in the Divine Comedy. This is uh, because three was thought of in Christian theology, ideology, as a divine number. 33 was the age, you know, they thought at that time that Jesus died. We actually don't know for sure. Uh, the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, right? There's three who are also one. Jesus betrayed three times. Three shows up often in the Bible. And you know who else likes number three? Illuminati. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think about that. Wake up, sheeple. 33rd degree Mason, anyone? Let's put some stuff together. Was Jesus a Freemason? He was a carpenter. Carpenter. Mason. Pulling string now from one picture to another in my basement bunker, yelling, aha! What does it all mean? Is Jesus the head of the Illuminati? Was the Bible written by lizards? Should we be worshiping lizards? How deep does it all go? Only Tom Hanks knows for sure. Maybe Roy Disney. and Probably Pat Sajak. Those QAnon motherfuckers are probably sipping on some sweet kid's adrenochrome right now. And yes, I know Roy is supposed to have been long dead, which is exactly what they want you to think. Sorry, I blacked out for a few moments. Where were we? So why is it called the Divine Comedy? Is it supposed to be funny? I don't know. Not really. Doesn't even include one fake sponsor or, you know, nobody makes fun of anyone's names. There's no wiener jokes in it. I guess comedy is subjective, though. Uh, in Dante's time, comedy was a work that started badly and ended well, which does happen the Divine Comedy. This was a departure from previous poems, which were mostly tragedies, plots that flowed from a promising beginning to a destructive end. Tragedies were considered more elevated and sophisticated. Pfft, all right. Comedy, meanwhile, was a lower style with plots that started out unhappy and became happy. Along with, along with this low genre, Dante also chose to write the poem in vernacular Italian, the common tongue of the people, not the Latin of scholars and religious writers, departing a lot from you know, the mainstream here. 
No one believed this could be done well in Dante's time. It even inspired some controversy after he died. Why did he write it in the common vernacular? Dante may have been uh, acknowledging how risky of a move it was when he called his work a comedy to begin with. At first, Dante just called the work the comedy. After his death, Dante would become known as the divine poet in Venice in 1555. The adjective divine would be added to his work, making it the divine comedy. It didn't take too long for Dante's work to be recognized after his death. By 1400, there were no fewer than 12 full-length commentaries devoted to explaining the poem's meaning in detail. A dozen may not sound like a lot, but again, very few people wrote anything back then. Super rare to have other writers writing about your writing. Uh, Giovanni uh, Boccaccio, an important Italian Renaissance writer and poet, delivered the first public lectures on the Divine Comedy between 1373 and 1374. Dante's poem was the first quote-unquote modern classic to be taught alongside the ancient classics in university courses, a regular guy from Italy being taught alongside the greats like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, sadly, Dante wouldn't get to see any of this, you know, dying long before his fame began. Now let's get into his life a bit now before tackling the Inferno. Most of what is known about Dante's life comes from his own writings. He didn't really gain a significant amount of fame until quite some time after his death, so when he was alive, you know, no one really thought to write a lot about him. We know he's born in Florence, which was the Republic of Florence in, in or around-ish 1265. Uh, Florence as a city was established by Julius Caesar back in 59 BCE. The Republic of Florence formed in the 12th century and would last as an autonomous nation all the way until 1533 CE. I always forget that for centuries after the fall of the Roman Empire, much of Italy was divided into various city-states. You know, it wasn't just Italy. Uh, during the Renaissance that would follow shortly after Dante's death, uh, uh, Venice, Milan, the Papal States, the Kingdom of Naples, four of the other five major city-states of the Italian peninsula, in addition to Florence. Uh, we don't know what day Dante was born in Florence, but documents recorded that it was under the sign of Gemini, so between May 21st and June 20th. He remained a devoted citizen to Florence all his life, even after Florence kicked him the fuck out and he became an angry sad boy. He once fought as a cavalryman against the Ghibellines, a banished Florentine political party supporting the Holy Roman Empire. One of his mentors was Brunetto Latini, member of the Guelph party that supported the papacy over the Holy Roman Empire in the power struggle between the emperor and the pope. It's complicated, but basically this, uh, this power struggle was the Holy Roman Emperor thought he should hold the most power in Europe, as emperors like to do, hold the most power, and appoint who he wanted to appoint to various positions, but the Pope felt that he, as God's representative, was the most powerful man on earth and that the emperor should bend his knee to him. Bend your fucking knee on the Pope. It was Pope versus King, secular versus celestial. You know, who gets the final say on shit? Basic power struggle that flared uh, off and on for a few centuries in Florence, other city-states and elsewhere in Europe. Latini was a wealthy noble, a skilled orator, a noted politician in Florence. He worked for a time as a type of lawyer also as a high-ranking politician. And if he was Dante's mentor, or one of them, Dante's family was probably part of the upper crust of the city that around that time had about 30,000 people. Uh, another poet who helped shape Dante's style immensely was another friend and mentor, Guido uh, Cavalcanti. Guido spent uh, most of his life trying to save a noblewoman, Princess Peach, from an evil tyrant, a monster listed in old sources as uh, either Bowser or King Koopa. Wait, not, that might not be true. I might be thinking of another famous Italian. Guido Cavalcante, uh, considered the first major poet of Italian literature, had he not existed, very possible Dante would not be known to us today. He's thought to have taught Dante how to write in the common vernacular and not just in Latin. And he was part of a whole group of poet philosophers in Florence at that time. Another who uh, perhaps inspired Dante's poetic style the most uh, was another poet named Guido, Guido Guinzelli. 
He's founder of uh, the Dolce del Novo, a style of love-themed poetry being written in Florence and elsewhere in Italy in the 13th century. Not positive on Guido's, this Guido's last name. The Dolce del Novo would popularize a way of referring to a woman, the object of the narrator's affections, as a creature from paradise. In poems using this style, the woman is described as an angel or as a bridge to God. I get it. Dudes back then were a lot like dudes now. Straight dudes anyway, right? Captivated by the female form. Such a primal desire. I'm not embarrassed at all to say my favorite thing to look at is a naked, beautiful woman, right? Is, is it nice to gaze at a sunset? Yeah, sure. Does it beat a great set of hips, ass, and breasts, women's curves combined with a beautiful woman's face? Fucking nope. Hey, Lucifina, and that sweet, syrupy primal lust she radiates. Of course those ancient horny dudes saw women as bridges to God. Right? That plays. That tracks. Uh, Dante would use that imagery a lot. Dante also used uh, the divine comedy as an opportunity to tell readers about his family. Readers meet his great-great-grandfather, uh, Cacaguida and Paradiso. Been very awkward if he would have put, you know, Grandpa Cacaguido and uh, Guida in hell, but also pretty funny. Uh, Dante also wrote that he was proud of his distant ancestors who were descendants of Roman soldiers who settled along the banks of the Arno. He doesn't mention his immediate family in the Divine Comedy. No mother, father, brother, or sister. Why not? No idea. No one really knows. In an earlier work, The Vita Nueva, uh, Dante does refer to having a sister. And his father is the subject of some insulting sonnets exchanged uh, jokingly between Dante and his friend Farisi Donati. Dante's father, uh, Alighiero de, de Bellincioni. It was tough because all these uh, YouTube videos were in Italian. And I was like, I don't understand. I'm not gonna be able to pick out the name out of all the other Italian words in this video. Uh, a member of the Guelphs. Uh, the Guelphs had lost an important battle to their rivals, the Ghibellins in the middle of the 13th century, but Alighiero was not exiled along with the rest of the Guelphs, suggesting that you know Dante's dad was protected by his social prestige or that he was in such low standing that he wasn't considered worth exiling, exiling, probably because he was in very high standing. Dante would grow up in a world like this, full of exiling and other political punishments. One day you could be in power, the next you could wind up banished with your property seized, which would eventually happen to Dante. The fight between the Guelphs and the Ghibellins seemed as fated as the legendary battles between the Greeks and the Troys, or the Trojans. Uh, and these, you know, political parties would fight literally, not talking about heated arguments, talking about swords, arrows, hangings, Burnings, they took that shit seriously. In 1266, when Dante was still a baby, a force of Guelph supported by papal and French armies were able to defeat the Ghibellins at Benevento, expelling them from Florence. So the party of Dante's father was back in power. Florence was on a new path and Dante grew up in a city brimming with post-war pride and expansionism, eager to extend its political control throughout Tuscany. Expansionist dreams reminded Florentines of the legendary civilization of ancient Rome, that gave Florence its birth. Not only was Florence extending this political power, but it was exercising intellectual dominance in the region as well. An intellectual dominance that Dante would contribute to. Remember, Florence is where the Renaissance was born. Uh, back to his family in early life. Dante's mother, Bella, died when Dante was young, sometime before he reached 14. Some sources say seven, some say 10. Uh, his mother's genealogy is unknown, but thought she belonged to the wealthy Abati family, longtime Florentine nobles. After his mother's death, Dante's father then married Lapide Criasmano Crisalufi. I, I just try to say it fast because I have no fucking idea. Together they had a son, Francesco, and a daughter, Agatastinata. I don't know how to say her name either. Couldn't find an example. Alighiero died sometime between uh, before 1283, and he left his children modest yet comfortable properties in Florence along with other properties in the country. So dude had some money. Guessing money was not a big concern for Dante while he lived in Florence. Uh, around the time of his father's death, 
Dante married Gemma Donati to, <laughs> I keep wanting to say that pizza place is there, uh, to whom he had been betrothed since 1277. Sources say that Donati, uh, their, the family, was a wealthy family in medieval Florence. So fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Got some money from dad. Got some money from mom's family. Got some money from wife's family. Plenty of money to buy all the sweet parchment and vellum and quills and ink and shit that a middle ages poet could want. Dante and his wife would have four children, maybe. Hard to find records for one of them. At least three. Uh, Jacopo, Pietro, Antonio, Antonia. They're real. Maybe Giovanni. Uh, Dante and his wife may not have loved one another. A lot of literary nerd speculation about this. He didn't put Gem in his epic poem. He wrote about Beatrice. Noble arranged marriages didn't always get love thrown into the mix. While he married Gemma, possibly for financial and status reasons, seems he was in love with the Beatrice. In love with the Beatrice. Uh, and the love he felt for her seems to have you know, helped motivated the man to write a lot of poetry. Beatrice would play an important role in the Divine Comedy. She'd become one of the most celebrated women in literature. Beatrice appeared in many of Dante's works, actually. Outside of the Divine Comedy, he wrote at least six other books of far lesser fame that we know of, of poetry. Beatrice was first canonized in the Vita Nueva. No, Nuova, a book of Dante's love poems written from sometime before 1283 to roughly 1293. She'd later return the Divine Comedy as the woman credited with having led Dante away from the vulgar herd. The Vita Nuova narrative is pretty simple. Dante first sees Beatrice when both are nine years old, setting off Dante's eternal love for her. Later on as teenagers, they run into each other here and there. And when Beatrice doesn't greet him one day, Dante expresses anguish. She's making fun of him. She doesn't care about him. He retains himself and says he's only going to write, or then he retains himself, says he's only going to write about her virtues going forward. Later on, she dies. Dante mourns her, temporarily replacing her with another young woman, but finds he can only be loyal to Beatrice. In the last chapter of this book of poems, uh, Dante expresses his determination to write at some later time about her, that which has never been written of any woman. And the Divine Comedy would keep that promise. Now, was she really uh, a real person or just a fictional character in a poem? Uh, scholars seem to say that Beatrice was probably real. If she did exist, which is likely, uh, she's thought to have been the real person of Beatrice di Folco uh, Port Portinari. There's not a lot of evidence out there about her life, but most scholars seem to think uh, her father was a banker and that she was married to another banker, uh, Simone de Bardi. So she probably had a lot of money. Florence in Dante's time and for quite a while afterwards was one of the premier banking cities, if not the premier banking city in all of Europe, possibly in all of the world. The Renaissance would soon be born in Florence. A lot of that wonderful art that would be created during the Renaissance, funded by Florence banking patronage, the Medici Illuminati members. A lot of conspiracy theorists love to speculate about the Medicis, the bankers of Florence, lizard people. I uh, might have to suck them someday. Dante claims to have met a Beatrice only twice, on occasion separated by nine years, but was so affected by the meetings that he carried his love for her throughout his life. Dante first met Beatrice when his father took him to the Portinari house for a May Day party. They were both nine years old at the time. Dante, instantly in love with her, remained so throughout his life, even though she married another man. In spite of this, he maintained a deep love and respect for Beatrice, even after her death in 1290 at only the age of 25. Her death would lead him to more seriously uh, uh, get into poetry and philosophy as an attempt to preserve her memory. Man, crazy how much that early childhood encounter seemed to have affected him. Clearly, he idolized her in a way that you can, you can only do when you're not around somebody a lot to see their flaws, right? Easy to build them up in your mind into mythical proportions. I wonder what his actual wife thought of all the Beatrice poetry. I can't imagine Gemma loved it. Uh, Dante, dear, uh, will you be joining us for dinner tonight? 
Or are you too busy again writing love poems for that fucking slut Beatrice? Spaghetti's on the table if you want to tuck your boner away and join your actual fucking family. Uh, Dante, based on the company he kept, where and when he lived, what he created, was clearly highly educated. He obviously studied the classics taught at that time, very familiar with the Bible, as well as the writings of Aristotle, Cicero, Seneca. Aside from all this education, Dante was just plain old smart. Scholars say he was super intelligent, someone who possessed loads of self-confidence to go along with that intelligence. Uh, he supposedly had an insanely good memory. There's a spot in Florence currently marked by a plaque where Dante supposedly liked to sit and write his love poems about Beatrice while watching the construction of the Duomo, a.k.a. the massive Florence Cathedral. According to an old anecdote, as he sat there one day, he was asked by a passerby what he ate for breakfast. Eggs, replied Dante. And he doesn't see this dude for a year. A year later, that same dude walks past Dante again, sitting, you know, again on his favorite little rock. And he tests the poet's notor notorious memory. And all he says is, how? And Dante quickly responded with, with salt. Nice. I like some salty eggs as well. Maybe a little pepper. You know, maybe some Tabasco sauce if I'm feeling saucy. Uh, I definitely couldn't remember what I'd had for breakfast a year ago. Hard to remember what I had, you know, last week. Uh, by the time he was 18, as Dante claims in the Vita Nuova, he'd already taught himself the art of writing verse. He sent an early sonnet, which would become the first poem in the Vita Nuova to the most famous poets of his day. Right, had plenty of dough to buy plenty of old parchment, apparently. He received several responses, but the most important one came from a hero of his, the poet Guido Calvacanti, who we met earlier. The beginning of an important and complicated friendship. In chapter 30 of the Vita Nuova, Dante states that Cavalcante was the person who advised him to write in the Italian common tongue, not in Latin. Dante even dedicated the Vita Nuova to Cavalcante, writing that he was his best friend. Later, however, when Dante was appointed to a position in the Florentine government, he was pressured to agree with the decision to exile Cavalcante. That sucks. Had to kick his best bud out of the Republic, or he helped, I guess he didn't have to. Cavalcante then contracted malaria during his banishment and died in August of 1300. I guess Dante felt a bit guilty. Uh, this was hard on Dante. In Inferno, he composed a monument to his great friend, recording how indebted he was to Cavalcante. He also spends time talking about the more complicated side of their friendship, their opposing political views, fucking politics, separating people back then, separating people now. It was Dante's obsession, the bane of his existence. Uh, in 1295, Dante became a member of the Guild of Physicians and Ap Apothecaries, to which philosophers could belong, which opened his way to public office. He entered the political arena at a very dangerous time when once again, Florence was a divided city. The ruling Guelph class of Florence was further split into two parties now, the Black Guelphs led by Corso Donati and the White Guelphs to which Dante belonged. Two buildings owned and named after Corso Donati actually still stand today in Florence. Uh, the Black Guelphs continued to support the papacy, but now the White Guelphs, they were now against papal influences in the city-states because they didn't like the new Pope, Boniface VIII. They're like, mm, I don't like it. The whites gained the upper hand in this power struggle and exiled the blacks. So much Pope drama in this suck. So much exiling. Feels like any time an argument was settled back in Florence, you know, someone got exiled. Okay, you're right. I could not see it though, but the pineapple does go very well with the hammer on the pizza. You're damn right it does, Guido. Now grab your shit and get the fuck out of Florence. You know the rules. Uh, by around 1300, Dante became an influential speaker against papal intervention in affairs of the city-states. And then Pope Boniface VIII would detain Dante in 1300. I'm sure he got a real tongue lashing for being against some of his policies. Luckily, he didn't get tortured and killed. In November of 1301, when Dante is still detained, the exiled Black Wells secretly re-enter Florence and terrorize the city for six days. And then the Black Wells return to power, making things very dangerous for the White Wells, like Dante, who'd oppose them. 
And in January 1302, Dante is called to appear before the new Florentine government, and failing to do so, he is condemned, along with three other former white Guelph officials, for crimes he'd actually never committed. Didn't matter what they had done, they were just on the losing side of another political beef, and they were out. On March 10, 1302, Dante and 14 other white Guelphs condemned to be burned to death. Good thing he didn't show up. Political bullshit. So, so annoying back in 1302 and still annoying today. Uh, at least today we're not burning people to death for political differences. Uh, you know, not in this country, at least. That's progress, I guess. Uh, at first, after receiving his sentence, Dante was passionate about returning. Now around the age of 35, he wanted to reunite with the white Guelphs. He wanted to lead them in a military campaign. Let's fucking get those black Guelphs and get them the fuck out. But no one wanted to join him. He wasn't able to rally any other exiles. Uh, wasn't able to rally the uh, Gibbelins, another ousted political party, on his quest either because he had previously helped exile them. So now he's, you know, out alone, kicked out of Florence, really doesn't have a lot of friends. Most sources would say Dante remained in exile for the rest of his life alone. All his property thought to have been taken from him. The only good news that came from the exile was the fact that his wife and children didn't get to go with him. They had to stay in Florence. And I bet he was fucking pumped, right? <laughs> Freedom! Finally! So much time to fantasize about Beatrice. Maybe try to find a new Beatrice now that I don't have my fucking ball and chain dragging around behind me. I don't know. I don't know if he's excited about that. He might've been super sad. Uh, thought his wife ended up in a convent in Ravenna later in life. His three sons, Jacobi, Giovanni, Pietro, also exiled from Florence 13 years after their father in 1315, or at least two of them were, if Giovanni wasn't real. So much exile. Uh, Dante and his sons may have reunited in Ravenna. After Dante's death, his son Jacobi would bring a copy of the Divine Comedy to the Lord of Ravenna. He'd return to Florence in 1325, four years after his dad's death. He would actually win back his dad's confiscated property in 1343 before the damn plague took him out, 1348. Dante's other son, Pietro, able to return to Florence, but didn't stay there, died in Treviso. And, you know, we don't know what happened to the third son, Giovanni, because he might be a fake-ass dude. Uh, Dante's daughter thought to have become a nun like her mother. The years following Dante's exile seem to have been difficult. He wandered from place to place, as he himself repeatedly says in the Divine Comedy. Uh, he says that bitter is the taste of another man's bread and heavy the way up and down another man's stair. He likely had to rely on the patronage of those who appreciated his works to get by. He was received honorably in many noble houses in the north of Italy. He ended up in Ravenna, welcomed there by its prince, and he worked for the prince in some capacity, uh, actually died returning from Venice on September 14th, 1321 of malaria on some type of diplomatic mission for the prince uh, for Ravenna. He thought to have been around the age of 56 when he died. After his death, Dante was given an honorable burial attended by the leading men of letters of the time. He was buried at a church in Ravenna where he'd been living. Florence would later decide uh, once they entered the Renaissance that they wanted to bury Dante in their own city. They built a spectacular tomb for him. Michelangelo, even Pope Leo X's campaign for the poet's remains to be returned to his hometown, but the sneaky Ravenna monks simply sent an empty coffin, having found a hiding place in a cloister wall for Dante's bones. And those bones wouldn't be discovered until 1865, discovered by accident during some construction. And then his bones were reburied in a, in a Ravenna mausoleum uh, and then they were moved during World War II because uh, out of fear that the, the tomb would be, be bombed. Uh, his bones remain in Ravenna. Fuck Florence, right? They didn't want him in life. Too little, too late now. It wasn't actually until 2008 that Florence passed a motion officially pardoning their most famous resident. Hilarious. All right, Meat Sacks, now that we've investigated his life, all right, the works, uh, some of his works, some of the motivations of the man who both wrote and starred in today's subject, let's get into his greatest achievement right after a quick sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, 
what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. 
It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thank you for listening. Now it's Divine Comedy Time. The plot of Dante's The Divine Comedy is actually pretty simple. Dante is miraculously enabled to take on a supernatural journey, which leads him through hell, purgatory, and paradise. He has two guides, Virgil, the Roman poet, who leads him through hell and purgatory, and then Beatrice, his lost love, who takes over at the end of purgatory and leads him to paradise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. Hello, Safina. But of course, it's not like that. These fictional encounters take place around Easter in the year 1300. In the poem, Dante knows he's about to be exiled, even though in real life, he'd already been exiled. So he uses the story to explain how he personally coped with the impending calamity and suggest some solutions for Italy's troubles too. Despite the important historical context of the work, the Divine Comedy and its first of three parts, Inferno, is far from a simple political allegory. It's the product of a mind that spent decades grappling with writers like Aristotle, Ovid, Virgil, so much so that Dante felt like he could actually have conversations with them and did in Inferno. Let's meet some of the characters of Dante's trilogy uh, of afterlife. Uh, Inferno, Dante is 35 years old when his journey starts, possibly the age he was when he was exiled. The real Dante was more like 43 when he started writing the poem. Dante's fictional version of himself is more sympathetic, fearful of danger, and confused morally and intellectually than real-life Dante was. Though initially sympathetic to the suffering of sinners as the poem progresses, Dante gradually learns to abandon his sympathy and adopt a more pitiless attitude towards the punishment of sinners. He starts to view punishment as a reflection of divine justice, right? Sure, why not? Probably a little easier that way. You can either try and analyze the justice or injustice of it all, worry about the fairness, or just let your mind go to that place of, this doesn't make any sense to me, but what do I know? God punishes in mysterious ways. Grind them up, demons. Yeah, <laughs> get them. Uh, both metaphorically and literally, as Dante journeys through these afterlife realms, he grows closer and closer to God. The physical journey shows him things like sinners being punished, that he needs to see in order to develop spiritually. Dante the poet thought this was a representation of the universal Christian quest for God, making the character of Dante sort of an average everyman type. Readers learn that Dante the character has committed some kind of sin, which he doesn't specify, and that he's involved in Florentine politics somehow, but the poem doesn't say much else about the narrator. Interestingly, Dante's character speaks of feeling like he ranks among the great poets that he meets in hell and purgatory, but then also makes it clear that he'd prefer Beatrice, and God's love more than to be known as a great poet. Interesting thought about the sacrificial nature of art. Can you be an all-time great artist and have time to devote yourself to romantic love? Maybe Dante the writer struggled with that. Artists have struggled with balancing their art with the rest of their lives and continue to struggle with that to this day. Most of my comic friends, most of them are single or have had divorces like myself or, you know, struggle with trying to, some of them, you know, who are religious struggle with, you know, trying to develop their spirituality and also commit themselves to their art. 
Uh, I've listened to many a comic struggle with balancing getting up on stage enough to get better at their craft, with being home enough to have a family life or dating life of some kind, any life outside of uh, comedy. Comics struggling with that in the 21st century, just like poets struggle with it in the 13th and 14th centuries, I guess. The more things change. Uh, it's interesting to note the gap between Dante the character and Dante the writer in Inferno. Dante the character, for example, excited to see Brunetto Latini, one of his old mentors, in hell, the hell that Dante the writer put him in. Kind of weird. Now, if you wrote a book about hell and put one of your friends in hell, would they be flattered that you'd included them in your book or pissed off that you clearly judged and condemned them? I don't think my wife, Lindsay, would like it. Baby, you asked me to put you in the book. You said you wanted to be included. I thought writing you in as an evil succubus, demon, who tries to seduce men into giving their souls to Satan would be pretty cool. But you seem, you know, I don't know, you seem pretty mad about it. Uh, Dante, the character, is sympathetic and kind to the characters he meets, but Dante, the writer, is the one who devised so many excruciating torments that are punishing them. Uh, the next most important character in this epic is the Roman poet Virgil. We talked about Virgil in the Aeneid earlier. According to Dante, Virgil is down in hell. And the reason he's down in hell is pretty fucked up. The image of Virgil that appears in Inferno, sort of like a shade or spirit, has been condemned to an eternity in hell because he happened to live prior to Christ's appearance on earth and therefore prior to the possibility of Christian redemption. What a crazy thing to believe. That God would be that blatantly insane and whimsical when it came to who got to go to heaven and who didn't. That he would just fuck over millions and millions of people who happened to live before the time of Christ. How much does that suck? If A, God existed, and B, he had a bunch of weird, shitty, arbitrary rules like that. Like he was some miserable, low-level bureaucrat obsessed with technicalities. Listen, bud. I'm not saying you're a bad person. In fact, you seem fine. You lived a very virtuous life. You did unto others who, you know, uh, what you wanted done unto you, yada, yada. Here's the thing, bud. You died before Jesus, right? Read the fine life, uh, fine afterlife print. No getting around that. Uh, no can do. You know, I, I don't know how good you are at math, but bud, uh, you died in 19 BC. Add 33 years of Jesus' life to that. You put you about 52 years shy of any shot at heaven by my calculation. So, Turn out to get all bent out of shape about it, bud. You'll be in a mild version of hell. Take some solace in that. It's the best we can do for you, bud. Uh, unfairly condemned, Virgil has received orders to lead Dante through, through hell on his spiritual journey. He's a wise, resourceful, commanding presence, but he's also not really all that capable of protecting Dante from hell's dangers. Makes sense. You know, you can write up all the rules you want for hell, but demons, you know, not great at following rules. Uh, critics generally consider Virgil an allegorical representation of human reason both in its immense power and in its inferiority to faith in God, right? Dante needs Virgil to succeed in his journey because he needs Virgil's common sense and wisdom, but his failure to protect Dante at times thought to symbolize that reason is powerless without faith, an important tenet of Dante's moral philosophy. Dante, very much a man of his times here, right? So many Italians identities at that time, heavily intertwined with the Catholic church. In the fullest sense of the word, uh, Virgil acts as Dante's guide, showing him not only the physical route through hell, but also reinforcing its moral lessons, guiding him spiritually. At one point, he sums up for Dante what hell's all about, saying that the inhabitants of the infernal region are those who have lost the good of intellect, the substance of evil, the loss of humanity, intelligence, goodwill, and the capacity to love. He forgot to add, or... Or I guess he would forget to add, and unfortunate victims of bullshit technicalities like myself. What the fuck? Are we just gonna pretend that this makes sense? That I'm down here because I happen to be born at the wrong time? Are you fucking... Uh, Dante the character and Dante the poet seem to regard Virgil differently. Dante the character 
regards Virgil as his master, constantly swearing his admiration for and trust in him. Dante the poet, however, often makes use of Inferno to prove his own poetic greatness in comparison to the classical bards who preceded him, including Virgil. Dante the poet doing a little bit of flexing, especially when literally uh, he leaves Virgil behind in purgatory. While Dante respects Virgil enough to include him in the story, he also suggests that his poem outlasts Virgil entirely. At least that's what the literary experts tell us. Dante did take a long time to write this, right? Plenty of time to think about every detail, include lots of symbolism. Uh, now on to Beatrice. Aside from getting God's love, finding sweet, sweet Beatrice is Dante's primary goal in the Divine Comedy. Such a romantic. All this symbolism and philosophy written because a boy fell in love with the girl when he was nine. A girl who, if he did write it about the woman we thought he wrote about it, uh, wrote about, who, who died almost 20 years before Dante began writing it. Reminds me of a girl who lived next door to me when I was a toddler, Sarah Sargent. Not even kidding. I'm told she was my first friend. We'd play together through the fence, you know, that separated our yards. Apparently, it was very cute. But then we moved to Alaska when I was around three. When I came back to Riggins when I was eight, Sarah had moved away, but would visit her grandma who lived down the street a few weeks here and there this next summer after I moved back. And then, you know, I only saw her a few times uh, after that in passing years later when we were teenagers, but we never hung out again. After she left that one summer, I remember listening to Starship's 1986 Sarah song, right? My mom had the tape and I would just, you know, just really daydream about her. Just Sarah, Sarah, storms are brewing in your eyes. Oh, Sarah, Sarah, no time is a good time for goodbyes. Oh, Sarah, love me like no one loved me before. Remember that song? Come on. You get it. Uh, I was over it, you know, all that by the time I was in college. <laughs> but I remember when that song would come on, like, if I'm being really honest, maybe in my, <laughs> maybe still in my early 20s, I would just get a little like, I would just like wax poetic in my mind. Like, oh man, Sarah and I could be, you know, living out this perfect life together. I made her perfect in my mind because I didn't really know her. Uh, Beatrice is actually the one who uh, asked an angel to find Virgil, asked him to guide Dante through hell and purgatory to her. And actually right now I got to refocus because I'm like, I wonder where Sarah is today. Uh, not that I want to think that was not a thing. I'm very happy with Lindsay, but I was just like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about Sarah's Argent years. Uh, she has a limited role in Inferno, Beatrice does, but becomes more prominent in Purgatorio and Paradiso. And there are many other characters that come up while Dante is in hell, including many from mythology. Many are famous historical characters from dictators and religious leaders to warriors and poets, while others are his own political enemies, sometimes friends, acquaintances, also giants, serpents, centaurs, and more, many of whom help Dante and Virgil keep uh, moving uh, you know, on and out of hell. So many hijinks for them to overcome. That's where it's kind of like this buddy road trip uh, situation. Similar to a video game, Dante's Inferno also has a number of end bosses, monsters who represent evil that increase in their power as Dante descends down to the levels of hell. Right? And the, the last end boss uh, is, of course, Lucifer himself. Not getting that high score unless you beat the devil. And if you were ever to turn Inferno into a musical, I think for the climactic battle with Satan, you would have to throw down a little bit of striper. Fuck yeah. You're welcome. Uh, Lucifer is a prince of hell, resides at the bottom of the ninth and final circle of hell beneath the Earth's surface, with his body jutting through the planet's center. Uh, did I mention how with each circle of hell, Dante went down further towards the Earth's core? Mm -hmm, that's how this hell works. It's inside the Earth, which even Dante knew wasn't flat over 700 years ago. An enormous giant, Lucifer, has three faces, 
but does not speak. His three mouths busy chewing three of history's greatest traitors, Judas, betrayer of Christ, and Cassius and Brutus, betrayers of Julius Caesar. Now, I think it's pretty funny how Cassius and Brutus uh, get thrown in there with Judas. Shows where Dante's mind was. I'm sure the ancient world had serial killers, serial rapists, serial kid diddlers, but those guys not getting nibbled on by Beelzebub. Cassius and Brutus are. I wonder if Cassius and Brutus ever brought that up to Satan. How that didn't make a lot of sense. It's Satan, Satan, hold, hold up, hold up. A few words, please. Please, you can get back to gnashing your teeth. Just a few words. Uh, what about Emperor Nero? He supposedly slaughtered Christians, killed his own mom, even destroyed much of his own city in order to have an excuse to update his palace. Come on. He also allegedly beheaded his first wife, kicked his second and pregnant wife to death, then married a young boy who resembled his second wife, had him castrated, forced him to dress as a woman. And I'm getting not on? Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, also, interesting that they're getting chewed on by Satan in hell for betraying a dude who thinks to dine before the time of Christ is also in hell. <laughs> Just like Virgil. Eh. Uh, now let's get into the details of this epic poem. Inferno opens with Canto 1 shortly before dawn on Good Friday, the year 1300. Inferno starts with uh, some of the most famous lines of all time. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Not as rhymy, but sounds, you know, maybe about as cool as the bars I threw down earlier. I'm not too proud to admit that. Uh, traveling to a dark wood, 35-year-old Dante Alighieri has lost his path and is now wandering frightened and alone through the woods. Suddenly, he notices the sun shining down on a mountain above him, Mount Delectable. And he attempts to climb up to it, but finds his way blocked by three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Lucifina? These three beasts are pretty much directly taken from Jeremiah 5-6, the Bible. Uh, they symbolize the three kinds of sins that will send you to hell. Incontinence, represented by the she-wolf. Violence and bestiality, represented by the lion. Kind of weird. Not sure how the lion came to represent bestiality. Maybe a lot of dudes wanted to fuck lions back then. Uh, fraud and malice, represented by the leopard. The three beasts drive Dante back, and frightened and helpless, he returns to the dark woods. He thinks he can't climb the mountain because he's somehow unworthy. Night falls, then a ghost dude appears. The ghost dude claims he was born in the time of Julius Caesar. Dante recognizes him. It's Virgil. Virgil says he's here to guide Dante back to the path, which will take him to the top of the mountain. Then Canto 2, uh, Canto, uh, Virgil gives him some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that their path is going to take them all the way through hell. The good news is that Dante, if he keeps moving, will eventually reach heaven where Dante's beloved Beatrice awaits. Dante is then hesitant to follow Virgil because A, he's a scary fucking ghost dude guy. And B, not a Christian. But Virgil tells him it was Beatrice, along with the Virgin Mary and St. Lucia, who sent Virgil to Dante when Beatrice saw that Dante was lost in the woods. Convinced, Dante's like, all right, I'll follow you. He's going to try and find his long-lost love. He must continue to stalk the woman who may not have wanted anything to do with him when she was alive. You think about that with this story? I was thinking about that. Imagine that. What if we found evidence someday that Beatrice was real and that she fucking hated Dante? <laughs> Just, he creeped her out. She was writing in her diary about a weird married stalker who was obsessed with her. March 6th, 1285, C.E., Dearest Diary, caught Dante staring at me at the market again today. That man gives me the heebie-jeebies. Wasn't as bad as yesterday when I caught him staring intensely at me while clearly beating off in an alley across the street from the cafe where I had lunch, but still very disturbing. I hope he is soon exiled. Uh, Dante decides to trust Virgil, which leads to Canto 3, The Gates of Hell. Virgil leads a reluctant Dante through the gates to the world's most evil place. The gates bear an inscription often translated as, Abandon all hope, 
you who enter here. Sound familiar? If you've ever ridden on Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean ride, when you first descend into the main meat of the ride, you pass a sign that says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Nice, Roy Disney. Way to steal from Dante, you unscrupulous mom-killing fuck. JK, Roy Disney's a great human being. As they approach, Dante hears cries of torment and suffering. The cries of the uncommitted. These are the souls of people who took no sides in life. Opportunists who were for neither good nor evil, but merely concerned with their own well-being. Dante the writer uses the opportunity to tell us about some of the people he thought took no sides. And he had strong opinions about that. Because remember, this is a guy that got kicked the fuck out of Florence and sentenced in absentia to die because he took strong stances. So he had you know, real strong feelings about those who wouldn't commit to one side of a debate. On uh, this level are Pope Celestine V, whose cowardice and selfish terror for his own welfare in Dante's eyes served as the door through which so much evil entered the church. He was Pope eight years before Dante was exiled. Uh, also, just inside the gates of hell are outcasts who took no side in the rebellion of angels, the biblical fallout between God and Satan. These souls reside in the shores of the Acheron River, the border of hell. Uh, I didn't, that's one of the few words I'm questioning here that I didn't put a pronunciation guide for. Hopefully I got that right. Acheron, I think. Uh, naked and aimless, they spend eternity racing around in the mist in pursuit of a waving banner uh, representative of their shifting self-interest while they're relentlessly chased by swarms of wasps and hornets. Hell wasps. Sounds terrible. Fucking hate wasps. I've been sung so many times with those little monsters. I poured gasoline on their nests numerous times and burnt those bastards alive. And I feel like if I ended up in hell, the wasps I burned would be coming for me. Right? And I couldn't burn them again because I'm guessing hell wasps, pretty flame resistant. On the ground, maggots and worms drink the putrid mixture of blood, pus, and tears that uncommitted souls leave behind. Dante, the character, is shocked. These souls are suffering so much and he's not even really in hell proper yet. After passing through the gates, Dante and Virgil reach the ferry that will take them across the Acheron River. Well, that's how you say it. The ferry is piloted by, uh, piloted. The ferry is piloted by the famous Greek ferryman of the River Styx, Charon, a repulsive creature with blue-gray skin and a tusked mouth. And I love that even though this creature's name is spelled C-H-A-R-O-N, it's pronounced Karen. <laughs> Reminds me of our continually outraged, I need to speak to your manager, time-traveling Karen character. Are you fucking serious? What? Who does this Dante think he is or whatever old Greek or Roman dumb shit who wrote this? Get me a hell monster? My fucking name? Who's in charge around here? I don't want to be a hell monster. I want to speak to the manager or author or Satan or whoever's running this shit show. Who forgot to pay the AC bill, by the way? Fucking hot as shit. Ow! Who are these wasps in here? Get your hands off me. I'll throw you in the ninth circle of hell, dick. Uh, anyway, Dante's Karen says there's no way that uh, he's going to take Dante to hell. Dante's still alive. It's against the rules. Right, what kind of operation do you think we're running here, Dante? Hell's for demons and the dead. Virgil says that Dante's on a divine journey and Karen has to take him. Vir Virgil's like, yo, Karen, can we step away and talk in private for a second? Look, homeboy has a major heart on for this chick named Beatrice. I don't get it, but it's not for me to judge. You know, this, this is like some epic Romeo and Juliet shit, you know? Sorry, that reference will make sense uh, in a few more centuries. What I'm saying is this is some true love shit. You don't want to stand in the way of true love, do you, Karen? All right, whatever, Ron. I still want to speak to the manager, but fuck, I'll take him to hell and stuff, I guess. Uh, so now we're into Canto 4. First circle of hell, a.k.a. Limbo. Limbo, according to Dante, basically an inferior form of heaven. In terms of hell, it's about as good as it gets. Uh, limbo houses virtuous non-Christians and unbaptized pagans, including Virgil, many of the other great writers and poets of antiquity who died without being able to become Christians because, you know, Christianity wasn't uh, around yet. So it's that bullshit technicality stuff we talked about earlier. 
Dante asks Virgil if anyone's ever left limbo, and Virgil says that he did see Jesus descend into limbo and take Adam, Abel, Noah, Moses, Abraham, David, and Rachel into his all-forgiving arms and transport them to heaven as the first human souls to be saved. And I bet he was like, fucking lucky, must be nice. Uh, this was called the harrowing of hell. It happened in CE 33 or 34. But that was it. No one else should hold their breath. <laughs> I love that there were years attached to this, by the way. That that's when, that's when, you know, I mean, I get that it, you know, coincides with when uh, Jesus died, but it's kind of funny to attach dates to him coming down there and just grabbing a few people. Uh, now God hasn't been down in a while. Uh, last time I saw him, uh, I think he popped around about 71, 72. Uh, he grabbed James Dean, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, I think he picked up Jimi Hendrix. He wanted some guitar lessons or something. Uh, the duo keeps going. As they travel to the first circle of the abyss, they come across a handful of the greatest poets of all time. Homer, Horace, Ovid, me, JK, uh, Lucan. Dante says they accept him as one of their own. Sweet. Dante just putting words in the mouths of the greatest poets in history, right? <laughs> Saying that he is worthy of being in the same, spoken in the same, you know, sentence as them. No shortage of confidence with this guy. Uh, Dante and Virgil continue and reach a great castle surrounded by a flowing brook and seven gates symbolizing the seven virtues of chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. I forgot what temperance meant. I had to look it up. Abstinence from alcohol. Why? Why is that listed as a virtue? What happened to having a good time? What happened to turning water into wine, right? Jesus liked to drink. He was virtuous. Come on, come on. Lighten up on the temperance. Uh, Virgil tells Dante, Dante fucking downer, that the castles were the wisest of men of antiquity live. After passing through the seven gates, they come to a beautiful green meadow where Dante meets a number of historical figures. I mean, I guess this part of hell really isn't that bad, right? There's green meadows and stuff. Uh, many of them associated with the Trojan War and the Roman Empire. He meets Julius Caesar, Electra, mother of the founder of Troy, uh, and elite Romans of all kinds. And it's funny again that Caesar's not in heaven considering the dudes who betrayed him, you know, are seen on par with Judas. Uh, Dante meets Saladin, a Muslim military leader known for his battle against the Crusaders, as well as his uh, generous, chivalrous, and merciful conduct. He encounters a group of philosophers, including Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. And then he moves on to the second circle of hell, lust. Hail, Lucifina! Hopefully there's going to be some kind of sweet demon orgy. Please, let there be a demon orgy. Uh, the second circle of hell, lust, is the first circle of incontinence. That broad range of sins we mentioned earlier that will send you to hell. Uh, in this case, incontinence does not mean shitting yourself, but rather fleshly sins that originate from unbalanced passions, emotions, and desires. The sins of lust, also called carnal malefactors. The second circle of hell is where the real punishments begin. Dante describes it as a part where nothing, a part where no, or yeah, a part where no thing gleams. I guess part in terms of, uh, in, in place of place there. Doesn't sound like a sexy orgy. At the border between circles one and two, a creepy ass monster named Minos sidetracks Dante and Virgil. Minos is the king of Crete in Greek mythology, but in Inferno, he's a giant, grotesque, serpentine beast. He's essentially the Saint Peter of hell. He decides where the souls of the sinners go for their torment. After hearing a given sinner's confession, Minos curls his tail around him uh, in a specific number of times to show the circle of hell where the sinner is going to be heading off to. Virgil talks his way out of an altercation with Minos and the duo continue. Inside, Dante and Virgil watches the souls of people who were overcome by lust swirl around in a violent and continuous storm, never finding peace or rest. It mirrors how they were carried away by their passions in life but now they can see the bright voluptuous sin as it actually is, a howling darkness of helpless discomfort. Because the sin of lust takes two to tango, Dante puts this sin as the lowest on the totem pole because it's not a selfish sin. As you can guess, lots of people from history show up here. Cleopatra, 
Achilles, Paris, Dido, Helen of Troy, to name a few. All people who cheated on their spouses in life. There's actually so many noble women in this circle that the fifth canto is often referred to as the canto of queens. I bet a lot of the cult leaders we've covered, you know, would end up here as well. Father Yod, ballin' baby, down in this circle of hell. Maybe he and the rest of Yahuwah 13, his band, would be playing some kind of old songs to add to the torture, right? I feel like they could be a hell's house band. Come along, baby. Come along, baby. Come along, baby. Did you remember how bad they were? Never forget. Never forget the hellish sonic torment of Father Yod's Yahuwah 13. Uh, overcome by pity and anguish for the poor souls trapped in the second circle of hell, Dante faints. Before moving on to circle three, I should add that our own time set god, Lucifina, rumored to regularly stop by this circle of hell, distract Minos, rescue some of the poor souls of lust who've ended up there, and takes them to Nimrod's heaven, aka his alpha and omega ball sack, and lets them get to some heavenly fucking. That's, that's what I've heard. Hey, Lucifina. Now, we're in Canto 6. After Dante comes to, the duo move it along to the third circle of hell. Gluttony. Dante notices the smell immediately. No bueno. The souls of gluttons are overseen by a giant three-headed worm monster named Cerebus, also known as the Great Worm. Okay, makes sense. He's a worm. He's big. He's the Great Worm. Virgil, thinking quickly, fills this monster's mouth with mud, and he and Dante proceed safely past him. Seems like a pretty easy monster to outsmart. As they progress through the circle, they notice that sinners here are punished by being forced to lie in a putrid slush of icy rain, shit, and decay. It's described as a great storm of putrefaction. The vile slush symbolizes personal degradation of one who overindulges in food, drink, and other worldly pleasures. I feel like I'm being personally attacked. Son of a bitch, I might end up there. Why are donuts and Cheetos so delicious? Why does whiskey keep tasting better the more you drink? It's not my fault. Uh, the sinners are so deeply lodged in the slush that they can't see the other sinners nearby, representing the glutton selfishness. Dante gets political a bit in the circle, speaks to a character whose name in Italian uh, meant hog. He thought to, uh, thought to be one of his political contemporaries. No one knows exactly who Dante is dissing here. In the first of several political prophecies in the Inferno, this hog predicts the expulsion of the white Guelphs, Dante's party from Florence by the black Guelphs, making, uh, marking the start of Dante's long exile from the city. So Dante, the character, not thrilled about the information Dante, the author, already knows about, and he and Virgil move on. Canto 7, fourth circle of hell, it's greed. Fourth Circle is guarded by someone named Pluto, unfortunately not related in any way to the cute and continually happy Disney dog. Historians think Dante was, Dante was actually referring to Plutus, god of wealth in classical mythology, not Pluto, classical ruler of the underworld, who is more akin to Lucifer, who will show up later. A little confusing. Inferno could be a lot like Shrek. You know, it combines a great deal of characters from past works and something new. Dante's version of Pluto fucks with Virgil and Dante by uttering the cryptic phrase, the door of Satan, the door of Satan. Proceed downward. That's a creepy-ass phrase to utter. You should, you should utter that to a stranger, right? And then just leave and never talk to him again. Maybe after you get something to eat at a drive-thru or a coffee, just, just right before you leave, after, you finish, after you're finished paying, just be like, the door of Satan, the door of Satan, proceed downward. <laughs> That'll give that barista or fast food sling or something to think about for a while. Uh, Virgil knows Dante is not ready to get right to Satan, though, so he, he pushes him into the fourth circle. Here they see people being tormented for displaying greed. They're divided into two groups, the avaricious and the prodigal, those who hoarded possessions and those who lavishly spent it. 
these people are unrecognizable because their greed has forced them to lose their individuality. But Dante says he does recognize some cardinals and popes. Can't not take a few more political shots. These sinners are forced to joust with heavy stones as weapons. They push the stones with their chests, symbolizing their selfish drive towards accumulating a great fortune. Following lines are sort of a, a beautiful and terrifying look into human nature. Dante writes, Here too I saw a nation of lost souls. Far more than were above, they strained their chests. Against enormous weights and with mad howls, rolled them at one another. Then in haste, they rolled them back, one party shouting out, Why do you hoard? And the other, why do you waste? I feel like some past suck subjects might be found in this circle, like the Bloody Benders, H.H. H. Holmes, Bell Gunnis. I kill him for that money. Hangy bangy, oof, oof, to kill an only man for the money, and I jousting in hell ain't like funny. You know, something like that. Virgil and Dante now proceed onto the fifth circle in Canto 8. The fifth circle of hell addresses the sin of wrath. The land of the angriest fuck and the sullen, those who didn't express their anger in life. Who might be here from the suck verse? So many have had such wrath, but since they also tended to commit, you know, Violence as well, another circle of hell awaits the Unabomber, Timothy McVeigh, a.k.a. Noodle McDryween, the Columbine shooters, and so many serial killers. So many suck subjects committed so many sins, hard to figure out which circle to put them in. Minos, the giant, grotesque, serpentine beast. Would have just had to sort them out, I guess. Uh, the fifth circle contains another of hell's rivers, the River Styx, a swampy, fetid cesspool in which the wrathful spend eternity struggling underwater with one another. Meanwhile, the sullen lie bound beneath the sticks' waters, choking on the mud, unable to express themselves. Interesting look at those who felt so much anger but didn't express it in life. This was the last circle for the sins of incontinence. Things get worse from here. Dante and Virgil now catch a ride across the river sticks. As they traverse the river, Dante and Virgil watch the hordes of angry assholes fighting each other and the sullen masses gurgling below. Then out of the water pops up a writhing soul named Filippo Argenti, Filippo Argenti, uh, a prominent Florentine politician from the well-known Edamari family who happened to be one of Dante's political enemies. It's thought that Filippino, <laughs> Filippino, sorry, Filippo uh, confiscated Dante's property after Dante's expulsion from Florence. As the duo watches, Filippo is seized by the wrathful souls and dragged away. Just as Argenti enabled the seizing of Dante's property, he himself is seized. Uh, by all other wrathful souls, or by some other wrathful souls. Nothing like dishing out some literary revenge against political opponents. After this, Virgil and Dante see some lights up ahead, which Virgil says is the city of Dis. Dis is the old term for the king of the underworld, like Pluto or Hades. Dis can also be interpreted as Lucifer. Basically, they're headed to Lucifer Town, Devil City. As they approach Devil City, Dante sees high towers that resemble, resemble fiery red mosques. Some symbolism there for sure. Uh, it would be, uh, for a Christian writer at this time, easy to label Islam as evil. Muslims were one of the most consistent enemies fought uh, by Christian medieval states. Crusades had been, warned, had been waged against them. Many Christians painted Muslims as evil adversaries. And as we were reminded of last week, a lot of you know Muslim rulers didn't care much for Christians either. Went went both ways. Uh, the walls of Dis, guarded by a bunch of fallen angels. After approaching the gates, Virgil is unable to convince the demonic guardian angels to let them enter and pass through. Canto 9 begins with Dante getting threatened by the Furies, deities of vengeance from Greek mythology. Not a warm welcome in Devil City. Virgil tries to talk him down, but the Furies start attacking Virgil. Then they threaten to sick Medusa on the dynamic duo, and Virgil covers Dante's eyes to protect him. But it's looking like they're done for when a huge angel appears directly from heaven. What the shit? 
He opens up the gates for the duo by touching it with a wand and then rebukes the devils for not letting the travelers in. Then he vanishes. Okay. Seems like he could have just, you know, taken them on out of hell, but I guess that wasn't part of Dante's journey. This interaction is believed to symbolize that humanity can have all the instruction and reason and science it wants, symbolized by Virgil, but if they don't have faith, a.k.a. sweet angels, to save them, they're doomed. Virgil now warns Dante that they're entering the bad neighborhood part of hell. From now on, Dante shouldn't make eye contact with any of the souls they come across. That's when you know you're really fucked up, when you live in one of hell's worst neighborhoods. When you're jealous of souls being tortured in, you know, gated communities out in hell's comparatively posh suburbs. Canto 10, the sixth circle of hell. This is the level that houses the heretics, those that doubted the dogma of the Christian religion. Pope must have loved it when he made it to this part of the story. Uh, Dante, the poet, name drops Epicurus, a famous classical Greek philosopher who believed that the soul dies with the body. Epicurus and his ilk are trapped in flaming tombs here forever. Epicurus getting severely punished for not believing in the soul before Christianity was even a thing. Dude lived in the 4th century BCE. Feel like God could maybe cut him a break or something. As the pair navigate through a giant flaming graveyard, they come across a flaming tomb that houses the pair of Epicurean Florentines. To no one's surprise, these Florentines are more political figures that Dante didn't care for. The first person was a, a, a Ghibelline political leader named Ferranata degli Uberti, who died the year before Dante was born in 1264. Dante was not a big fan. Poor Ferranata was actually condemned for heresy or heresy. Uh, years after his own death, Ferranata died at Florence in 1264. In 1283, his body, that of his wife, Adeletta, were exhumed, tried, and wait for it, posthumously executed. I, I think I might have, I, I just recall in an email now I've gotten about the word uh, posthumously. I think that's how you're supposed to say that. Not posthumously, posthumously. Hopefully I got that correct. Uh, I'm continually amused by how fucking insane our species can be, by the way, with this uh, posthumous <laughs> uh, execution. Digging up a dude who's been dead just shy of two decades. His wife, corpse too. Guessing she'd been dead for about the same amount of time. Convicting their corpses. Sentencing them to death. I sentence you both to death. But like, but more death than you already have experienced. Guards, hang them until they're more dead than they, they currently are. Just make them more dead. Come on, someone help out. Uh, according to Boccaccio, in his commentary on Dante, the Inquisition discovered, among other things, that Ferranata denied life after death. He was of the opinion of Epicurus that the soul dies with the body. And that's why he gets sent to hell. Also, uh, they didn't like that uh, <laughs> uh, the, the guy was fond of good and delicate uh, viands and ate them without waiting to be hungry. For this sin, he is damned as a heretic in this place. It's crazy, right? That they uh, he gets sent to the sixth circle of hell, partially for eating food when he wasn't hungry. Now on to Canto 11. Well, we're still in the sixth circle, the level for uh, heresy. Uh, Dante sees two more famous figures, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, Pope Anastasius II. According to some modern scholars, Dante gets this wrong. They think he meant to say the Byzantine Emperor Anastasius I, or the first, who was a notorious believer in monophysite Christianity, which held that Christ was not a human being, but was altogether divine and had simply taken a human body during his time on earth. Not a big deal to many of us living in the modern day, but the Pope didn't care for that point of view. No agree to disagree with popes. Agree to burn, motherfucker. Uh, back to Dante's journey. They prepare for a descent into lower hell. Virgil takes the time to explain the layout mindset of lower hell in which the sins of violence and fraud are punished. In this conversation, Virgil asserts that there are only two legitimate sources of wealth, natural resources and human labor and activity. He says that usury, the sin punished in the next circle, is an offense against natural resources and human labor because usury is the sin of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. 
Virgil says it's a form of blasphemy because both natural resources and human labor come from God. Sounds like Dante maybe didn't like the interest he was uh, paying on some loans. He was pissed about it. Also sounds anti-Semitic. The Jewish community in Florence wasn't formally founded in 1437, until 1437, but right around the time Dante was exiled, a number of Jews had just moved into Florence and many of them were moneylenders. I'm guessing maybe Dante owned, you know, one or more of them some money. After having a little discussion about bank loans while in hell, Dante and Virgil then descend a jumble of rocks to reach the seventh circle of hell. On the way, they tried to evade the Minotaur, but the Minotaur sees them, catches up with them and bites the fuck out of Dante. Virgil tries to assure this monster that Dante is not the right guy you're supposed to bite. He's not your hated enemy, which is Theseus, the mythical king and founder of Athens, supposed to be biting him. But the Minotaur doesn't listen because he's a fucking dumb, angry, easily confused monster. He's not worried about who he bites. He's a monster in hell. He's one of the punishers, not one of the people worried about further punishment. Minotaur charges at Dante and Virgil. They have to run as fast as they can onto the seventh circle. Dante's Canto 12 begins with our heroes in the seventh circle of hell. Theme here is violence. There are three rings within this circle for the three houses of violence, violence against others, violence against oneself, and violence against God, art, and nature. Violence against art. All right. uh, so many past suck topics going to be stuck in this level. Most of our serial killers, I imagine, Ed Kemper, definitely committed violence against others, himself, nature. He attempted suicide multiple times while awaiting trial for killing his mom and others. He tortured animals. He set some fires as a kid. He killed 10 people, including his grandparents and mom. Mother, why can't I find you in hell to put your head on a hell stick? Why do I burn, mother? Is it because of the windpipe fucking? Uh, Dante and Virgil make their way to the border of the first ring of the seventh circle, come across another of hell's rivers. So many rivers down here. The Phlegathon, one of the rivers of Hades made out of boiling blood and fire. It sounds like a shitty river. Generally, I like rivers. I'm pro-river most of the time. Fun to raft on, fun to fish on, but to sit on the banks on and listen to the rapids. This river sounds terrible though. Probably not very good fishing. Probably don't want to eat what you catch in a river of boiling blood. Crammed in the bubbling blood waters to blister and pain for eternity are the souls of those who were violent towards people and property. Chikatilo could probably be found just, you know, calmly back floating down this river. What is big deal? Chikatilo like it here. No one care where I jerk so shame cog. Hell is much to like. Uh, also included in this river are all the murderers, the war makers, the plunderers, the tyrants. Sort of made for Hitler, really. Also the young Turks from last week. Uh, centaurs, half men, half horse people. They patrol this ring. Their job is to shoot arrows at anyone who tries to crawl out of the boiling river. Which doesn't really seem like uh, it would stop many people, right? Like getting shot with arrows doesn't sound too bad to me. If you're already in a river of literally boiling blood, that's also on fucking fire. If I'm burning alive, if I'm being boiled already, uh, I don't f fuck arrows. I'm going to charge one of those centaurs. Uh, one of the centaurs, Nessus, offers to guide the poets along the Phlegathon River. Along the way, he points out a bunch of Greek and Italian tyrants, other historical and mythological figures writhing in agony. Uh, you know what? And this is interesting. In 1485, Florentine Renaissance master Sandro Botticelli uh, illustrated Dante's Divine Comedy. And I couldn't help but notice looking through the illustrations that one of the murderer dudes stuck in that boiling blood river looks a lot like my dad. I'm talking identical. I don't know if that means anything, but definitely, you know, I'm going to put some more notes uh, in an ever-growing, very concerning, gigantic file of possible murder clues I've been compiling on, you know, with my dad. Probably nothing here, but you just, you just never know. It's just growing body of evidence, you know, and all that. Anyway, after a little river ride, it was, must have been a hot-ass boat, the duo move on to the next ring. The beginning of Canto 13 finds the two in a strange forest. Dante is told all the trees used to be people. They're the people who have attempted or committed suicide. 
and have been damned to spend eternity in hell for violence against the self. In hell, these souls are transformed into gnarled, thorny trees and bushes and then fed upon by harpies, hideous clawed birds with the faces of women. Pretty harsh. Dante and his contemporaries didn't have a good understanding of how crippling clinical depression was back then. Not much tolerance towards suicides. In this forest, Dante also sees uh, profligates, people who are unprincipled or promiscuous. Hail Lucifina! Maybe now we're going to stumble upon a sex orgy, right? Some kind of hell orgy. Some sexy-ass goth girls, lots of tattoos and latex. Maybe kind of a suicide girl, kind of kinky vibe. I don't know. No, we won't. Uh, Souls stuck here are being chased and torn to pieces by dogs. One of the dogs spotted, rumored to have one eye, three legs, looks like a pit bull, responds to Bojangles. Interesting. Dante speaks with Pierre della Vigna, a former advisor to Emperor Frederick II, who's a tree now. In life, Pierre fell into disfavor with the court, was accused of being a traitor, then was blinded and imprisoned before he killed himself. Feels like his oppressors did most of the heavy lifting here when it came to a suicide. Feels like he got really screwed here. Dante the writer once again uses the opportunity to play politics a bit. Pierre's presence in the seventh circle as opposed to the ninth circle, which is for traitors, means that Dante believes Pierre was innocent of the accusations made against him. Dante also learns that the suicides have a unique fate in store for them after the final judgment. The day of judgment, also known as the final judgment, is when Jesus, son of God, will judge the living and the dead before destroying the old heaven and earth, which are corrupted of sin, according to Christianity. But here in Dante's hell, the suicides will not be allowed to be resurrected before they're judged. Uh, They'll have to maintain their tree form, still get chewed on by harpies. They don't get to be part of second chance here. Since they threw their bodies away, their own corpses will also hang from the tree's limbs. Gosh, oh my heck! Real harsh here. The murderers get their cases sent to Jesus' court of appeals, but suicides never get a new trial or a pardon. Fucking what? On to Canto 14 now. Now they're in the third round of the seventh circle of hell for those who are violent against God, nature, or art. It's basically a giant desert that that rains fire. It's a recreation of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that God destroyed in the Old Testament for being too sinful. The blasphemers, those who are violent against God, have to lie on the ground and face the sky while flames rain down upon them. The Sodomites, those violent against nature, according to Dante, uh, have to run in circles, enduring the torment of nature, or in this case, raining fire. Finally, the usurers, the ones who are violent against art, crouch, huddled and weeping, mirroring how they were inactive in life. Uh, Not a real progressive view on homosexuality back at the dawn of the 14th century in Italy, because by Sodomites, he did mean homosexuals. They're being punished more severely than murderers. If you really want to be punished in hell, kill somebody. But if you really, really, really want to be punished in hell, you stick your wing in someone's butt. Someone who wants it stuck there. On to Canto 15 now, still in the flame desert. Canto 15, Dante meets his old teacher, Brunetto Latini. Dante addresses Latini with genuine affection, expresses distress that he is in this place in hell. Some scholars theorize that Dante did this to refute suggestions that he only placed his enemies in hell. Or did he do it to show how powerful of a sin the church at that time thought sodomy was? Latini was a great, wonderful dude by Dante's account, but he stuck his peepee noodle in some poop holes. Now he's trapped in the seventh circle of hell forever. Very mysterious ways. After a chat with Latini, it's on to Canto 16. The dynamic duo encounter three men who are Florentines, whom Dante admired. This canto is all about how to save Florence from its current political instability. Since I can't imagine many of you really need to hear more about early 14th century Florentine politics, and this is already going to be a huge episode, let's skip it. (laughs) Canto 17 opens up on revealing that a dark shape rising up from the filthy depths of the abyss at the end of Canto 16 is, in fact, the monster Jerrion. It's fucking Jerry! Uh, Luckily, it's not Jerry Five Bucks from Is We Dumb. It'd be a weird crossover if he showed up here. 
<laughs> She's like, five bucks for the next place in hell. Uh, Jerrion is the grandson of the offspring of Medusa and a giant. He oversees the eighth circle of hell where fraud is punished. Dante describes Jerrion as a monster with the body of a dragon, tail of a scorpion, hairy arms, and the face of a just and honest man. Kind of a weird detail with the hairy arms there. Does that make him more monstrous? <laughs> he had the body of a dragon, the tail of a scorpion, and worse, very hairy arms. Uh, but for fraud, that tracks, right? His face didn't, you know, he looked honest, but he, he was a monster. Uh, Virgil announces that they must fly down from the cliff on this crazy monster's back, and soon they are swooping into the great abyss. 18th, uh, the eight, can, Canto, there we go, 18 starts in the eighth circle. This circle of hell is known as the Malabolge, a word that means evil ditches. It's divided into 10 bulges or evil pockets separated by great folds of earth with bridges between them. It's a very intricate level of hell. Uh, the pockets are for all different types of fraud, right? The pockets lead to a well, which forms the neck of a funnel that we'll get into in a bit. Uh, the funnel is where this kind of all ends. Dante and Virgil are soon surrounded by panderers and seducers. Their punishment is to line up in two lines, one on each edge of the ditch and receive lashings from whips via horns demons for eternity. Not a bad deal for hardcore masochists. Old Albert Fish, he probably loved this level of hell. Showbiz, smack my fat bottom with everything you got, demony bearcat. Put your back into it, Beelzebub bimbos. I can't come unless my ass is covered in blood, my mouth is full of peanut butter. In the group of seducers, Virgil points out Jason, the Greek hero who led the Argonauts to fetch the Golden Fleece. He gained the help of the king's daughter by seducing and marrying her, only to later desert her for another woman. They pass across the first bridge to the second ditch. The second ditch is for insincere flatterers. <laughs> it was just fucking hilarious to me. Way worse than a murderer is an insincere flatterer. Uh, those who abused and corrupted language to play upon the desires and fears of others, basically uh, uh, manipulators, ass kissers. <laughs> and I think this says more about Dante than it does about some Christian-based notion of hell, that Dante hated ass kissers more than murders. Dude, clearly he'd had it with ass kissers. Guessing uh, some of those types got him exiled from Florence. Uh, their punishment is to lie in a river of human shit <laughs> where they fight and howl at each other. Dante, of course, runs into somebody he knows from Florentine politics in this uh, turd stream. Canto 19 now. From a, creepy, from a creepy bridge of mangled earth, Virgil and Dante look over ditch three into the eighth circle of hell, uh, where they still are. Dante finds the Simoniacs, guilty of simony, uh, or simony, excuse me, the practice of selling church offices, favors, uh, other sacred things, basically people who try to charge for salvation. Agree with Dante here. The eighth circle of hell seems about right for these assholes. Most of the cult leaders we've sucked would be, I imagine, stuck in this hell ditch. Dante expresses his distaste for the corrupt among the church pretty thoroughly here. These sinners are dumped unceremoniously into holes head first, and then their feet are set on fire. The heat of the fire is proportional to their level of guilt. Dante writes, and let's add some background music now uh, to, to liven this up a bit. Rapacious ones who take the things of God that ought to be the brides of righteousness and make them fornicate for gold and silver. The time has come to let the trumpet sound for you. Feel that foot fire, Jim Jones. Tony and Susan Alamo and David Koresh. Stay in those hell holes, blasphemers. Meanwhile, the character of Dante at this point in Inferno seems to be making his peace with all this punishment. He feels bad for people, you know, or did. He felt bad for people a lot earlier. Now he's developing more of a, who am I to challenge the wisdom of God? Ah, fuck them, they deserve it, mentality. Now we move on to Canto 20, the fourth ditch. Dante and Virgil cross a spooky bridge, another one to see sorcerers, astrologers, diviners, basically anyone who claims to be able to tell the future, getting punished. 
They're punished by having their heads twisted around so they're facing backwards. They permanently look like that girl from The Exorcist. Pretty sweet horror imagery here. Very cinematic. I like it. They have to walk backwards for all eternity, unable to see their own future, even a step ahead. For good measure, they're also continually blinded by their own tears. Even though Dante was cool with the idea of punishment, uh, this sight does move him to tears. He expresses that it's horrible. These people are being punished this way. Virgil wants none of that and says, here pity only lives when it is dead. I, wait, he says, for, for who can be more impious than he who links God's judgment to passivity? Essentially, he says, if you disrespect God, this is what you fucking deserve. This is the easier way to say that. The sinners of this pit are a bunch of soothsayers, magicians from history, including the prophet uh, Tiresias, an ancient Greek who was given the gift of prophecy by Apollo himself. Watch your ass, David Blaine. Ease on the illusions if you don't want to end up in this hell ditch. You too, birthday party magician. That pick a card, any card, devil bullshit, gonna set your soul on fire. Gonna burn that silk shirt of yours off your fucking warlock chest. Soon we're in Canto 21, the fifth ditch. The duo crosses another bridge, find themselves in a special personalized hell for the worst of the worst, corrupt politicians. The politicians are submerged in a lake of boiling tar, representing the dark stickiness of their corrupt deals. I had to wonder if Dante helped inspire politicians to be tarred and feathered centuries later, but it appears the politicians were already being tarred and feathered in England over a century before he wrote this book. Uh, these hell-bound politicians' souls are guarded by demons called the male branch, which means evil claws, who tear them to pieces with, you guessed it, evil claws. They also use grappling hooks, especially when the politicians try to climb uh, up to the surface or get out of the tar. Suddenly, one demon throws a senator from Tuscany into the tar, scaring Virgil, terrifying Dante. Virgil makes Dante a hide and goes up to the demon who did the tossing, a demon who turned out to be the leader of the male branch, an end-boss demon named Malakota or Evil Tail. Virgil asks if they can pass. Malakota says, yeah, fine, you can go. But then he gives him some bad intel that sets him up. He tells him that the bridge across the sixth ditch is uh, shattered. Yeah, they have apparently construction problems down to hell. As a result of the earthquake that shook hell at the death of Christ in 34 CE. But there is another bridge further on that you can find. Malakota then sends a squad of his demons headed up by uh, Barbaricia to escort the poets. These demons add a sense of dark satirical humor to the end of the 21st canto when one of the demons rips ass. And Dante says, and he made a trumpet of his ass. Noise! Not even Dante was above the occasional fart joke. Canto 22 continues dealing with folks struggling in his corner of hell. Dante encounters more politicians he doesn't like. The male branch nice enough to pull the politicians out of the tar so Dante can have a word with them. Then they use the opportunity that they, uh, after they've been pulled out to slice them up to bits. One of these politicians escapes, dives back into the tar. Then a couple male branch go after him, but they get stuck in the tar as well. Start flapping around. You know, it's a little bit of, uh, we interrupt your regularly scheduled, your regularly scheduled hell programming to give you five minutes of Charlie Chaplin style physical comedy. Uh, Virgil and Dante try to sneak away from the pissed off demons, but they don't get that far before the male branch realize that it's all Dante's fault that they got stuck in the tar since he was the one that wanted to talk to the politicians in the first place. They start going after the duo. Virgil scoops up Dante, slides out of danger into the sixth ditch, the land of the hypocrites. Canto 23, or Canto. The punishment for hypocrites is that they have to walk in circles forever while wearing heavy robes made of lead that are painted to look like gold, but are actually worthless. Their outward appearance shines brightly while underneath they're heavy and just pointless. Very symbolic. The big spender here is Caiaphas, the priest who confirmed Jesus' death sentence, who lies crucified on the ground while the other sinners walk all over him as they walk in super heavy cloaks. Things just keep getting more brutal 
as the poets descend deeper. They climb down the ruined rocks of that bridge destroyed by the great earthquake, after which they cross the bridge of the seventh ditch where they come to an enormous hole, a big pit full of magical snakes. Yep, even worse than your average Indiana Jones-style run-of-the-mill snake pit, because this snake pit is where thieves go to get punished. Good thing none of these snakes can fly since snakes don't can't do that ever. <laughs> JK, who would ever think that flying snakes aren't real? What kind, what kind of canned dumbins would ever think that? Uh, inside the pit, thieves sit around while vipers attack them. When bitten, the thief transforms into some kind of animal or object. Then they undergo a, a painful process to reconstitute themselves into human forms. Uh, just as they stole another property in life, now their identities are stolen constantly. Sounds very painful. But like always, Dante meets some not-so-happy folks. He comes across Vanny Fucci, former thief who identifies himself reluctantly, as he's currently a little preoccupied uh, by being bitten by a serpent on the jugular vein. He then immediately bursts into flames and is reformed from the ashes like a phoenix. And that rinse and repeat shit goes on forever for this guy. In his pain and suffering, Fucci lays down a dark prophecy about Dante. It's more exile, banishment stuff. Canto 25 begins with Fucci hurling an obscenity to God, possibly a hand gesture for good measure, for which he is immediately swarmed by serpents. But that's not punishment enough for being mean to God. So then the centaur Caucus arrives on the scene. And for some reason, Caucus has a fire-breathing dragon on his shoulders and snakes covering his horse body. He's got all kinds of shit going on. And he fucks up Fucci real good. Uh, then Dante meets five thieves from Florence, these shades of sinners destined to bite each other and turn into mangled mutations forever. Soon we're in Canto 26, the eighth pouch of the eighth circle, the eighth pouch is for evil counselors and advisors. Maybe all the Boy Scout leaders found guilty of pedophilia. Maybe this is where they go. Those dudes were, you know, pretty terrible counselors. But not sure that those are the type of people Dante had in mind. The hell ditch is full of people who use their positions to get others to engage in fraud. Everyone gets their own personal bubble of fire. Odysseus, uh, Diomedes, Odysseus' fighting companion in the Trojan War, they're burning eternally in this eighth circle of hell for using the Trojan horse. How dare you guys be sneaky? Trojan horse, a.k.a. super fraud. <laughs> feels like Dante would have been a terrible military planner. No, we can't do that, you guys. It feels sneaky. No, we can't fight that way. Uh, Dante also uses this opportunity to flex on Homer and has Odysseus narrate a story about his last journey, a tale that Dante the poet made up entirely. Odysseus tells Dante about how he set off to sea again, died in a shipwreck, literally adding a sequel uh, to the Odyssey here. Ballsy. Then we're on to can Canto 27. Dante gets political again, complaining for a while about the Pope and Florentine politics. Again, let's skip it. We've heard enough about Florentine politics. Uh, Canto 28 is the ninth ditch. In this pocket, divisive individuals or architects of discord are punished. Sowers of scandal and schism. People who like to get other people riled up and then watch the world burn. People who like to watch the world burn, does that include people who want to watch the world literally burn? Like doomsday preaching cult leaders? Maybe Jim Jones is in this ditch. The sinners in the ninth chasm are damned to walk around the chasm until they arrive at a devil who slashes them with a long sword. Their bodies are sliced and mutilated in proportion to their divisive lives as their sin was to tear apart what God had intended to be united. These souls were then forced to drag their horribly mangled bodies around the ditch. And as soon as their wounds started to heal, they get all sliced up again. Sounds terrible. Dante the poet replaces the pro or places the prophet Muhammad in the religious schism part of the eighth circle of hell. Not inflammatory at all, Dante. Dante really goes after it, even condemning Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali. Again, no love lost between Christians and Muslims in the 14th century. Uh, there are also more Italian and Ro Roman politicians that Dante didn't like. These folks have their tongues cut out, their, their limbs cut off, their throats slit, their noses cut off, their ears, ears ripped out. Uh, all kinds of horrible shit. 
Uh, Dante sees Bertrand de Born here, a French knight who lived from 1140 to 1215. The knight carries around his severed head by its own hair, swinging it like a lantern. Bertrand said to have caused a quarrel between Henry II of England and his son, Prince Henry. Bertrand's punishment was decapitation, since dividing father and son is like severing the head from the body. Now we're into Canto 29. Still in the eighth circle of hell, fraud. Now we're in the 10th ditch. So much creative punishment. Uh, the current ditch is, is for falsifiers. These are people like alchemists, perjurers, counterfeits. Because they're a disease on society, according to Dante, they're condemned to experience every disease known to man at the same time. Sounds extremely unpleasant. Genital warts and colon cancer. On top of some syphilis, scabies, measles, jock itch, throwing some plague, bursitis, handjob warts, sprinkling some malaria, maybe a sinus infection. You get it. Everything. While some lie face down on the ground in submission, others run around tearing each other apart. I bet when you already have literally every disease you can possibly have, you don't really care about being torn apart. Uh, now in Canto 30, Virgil and Dante suddenly approached by the spirits of two imposters running rabid through the pit. One sinks his tusks into another's neck, drags him away like a wild animal with his prey. All kinds of crazy shit going on. Next, Dante meets counterfeiters. They're afflicted with a terrible disease that seems like dropsy, an illness where the body retains too much fluid, which gives them bloated stomachs, an inability to move, and an unbearable thirst. Then one of the counterfeiters, counterfeiters points out the perjurers who suffer from burning fevers. The counterfeiter who pointed out the perjurers and one of the perjurers start yelling at each other. They go back and forth with this verbal abuse until Virgil rebukes Dante for listening to this exchange. Dante expresses his sincere shame and Virgil forgives him. Now they come to the well of the Malibulge, the portal to the final circle of hell, the ninth. Bunch of giants guard this passage. Among the giants, Virgil identifies one named motherfucking Nimrod. Not even kidding. The giant said to have tried to build the Tower of Babel and unite mankind. How dare he wants to unite mankind. And Nimrod shouts out some unintelligible gibberish at Dante. What the shit, Nimrod? Our time's a god Nimrod is not only down in hell, but is the entrance to the ninth circle. Hmm. Nimrod obviously working undercover or something. Clearly just gathering some intel so he can figure out how he wants to renovate his own butthole hell or something. Uh, Nimrod and other giants, many of them giants who fought with Greek gods, stuck in place in the ground, their upper bodies chained in place. Also a giant there named uh, Antaeus. He didn't join in the rebellion against the Olympian gods, isn't chained, but still condemned just for uh, being a giant, I guess. You know, it's not, not always fair, Dante's hell. Also coming from Greek mythology, Antaeus was an African giant who was invincible when in contact with the earth, but was lifted into the air by Hercules and crushed. Luckily, because his hands are free, Virgil can, uh, convinces Antaeus to give them a lift down to the ninth circle of hell. Antaeus takes the poets in his large palm, lowers them gently to the final level. It seems like a nice fucking giant. Didn't even do anything wrong. He's stuck in this, you know, in the bottom of hell. Now we're in Canto 32, the ninth circle, baby. The dark heart of all the darkness, where traitors chillax, literally chillaxing. At the bottom of hell is a great frozen lake, not fire. Cassitis. Sinners are frozen inside Lake Cassitis, though all residents are frozen in the ice. Those who committed more severe sins of treachery frozen deeper in the lake than others. This lake of ice divided into four concentric rings or rounds of traitors corresponding in order of seriousness to betrayal of family ties, betrayal of community ties, betrayal of guests, and betrayal of lords. Each of the four circles are named after an individual who personifies that sin. Round one is named Cana after Cain the biblical figure who killed his brother Abel. In Cana, those who portrayed their kin stand frozen up to their necks in the lake's ice. Round two 
is named Antonura, uh, after Antonur of Troy, who was Pri- Priam's counselor during the Trojan War. Uh, those who betrayed their country and party stand frozen up to their heads. Uh, Dante then goes a little ape shit in this section, rips the dude's hair out for not telling him who he is. Hell's rubbing off on him. He's getting in on the torture. Virgil tells him, fucking calm down. Not, not your place. Turns out the dude whose hair he ripped out is another dude from Florence whose politics he didn't like. Of course, he just can't let it go. In exile, I imagine him just constantly consumed with being exiled, right? Just anybody who will listen. He's like, you know, and then I, that wasn't fucking fair. And then Giovanni, you know, I mean, you tell me. Giovanni throws me out and I, just because I said this like two years ago, and I don't think that's cool. And people just like slowly walk away, you know, just walk away, leave and just go tell somebody else, Jesus Christ, he's still at it. Fucking three years, he won't shut the fuck up about it. Uh, Canto 33 starts with one of the more fucked up scenes of the poem. The duo comes across a, ma- a man named Count Ugolino. Count Ugolino is just gnawing away at the tasty head of another soul nearby, a head that belongs to another traitor, Archbishop Ruggieri, and a life according to legend, when Ruggieri imprisoned Ugolino and his sons, denying them food, Ugolino, man, it's more fun to talk that way, was driven to eat the corpses of his dead children. So now he just chews on Ruggieri's head meat forever. Fun. Round three, the third ring of Circle Nine is named Ptolemy after Ptolemy, who murdered his house guests. Ptolemy invited his father-in-law, Simon uh, Maccabeus. Macca- yeah, I think it's uh, Maccabeus. And his sons to a banquet and then killed them. Sounds like a dick move. And Ptolemy, those who betrayed their guests, spend eternity lying on their backs in the frozen lake, their tears making blocks of ice over their eyes. Even the release of tears off limit for these naughty boys. Here, Dante encounters Fra Alberigo, a friar who asked Dante to remove the visor of ice from his eyes. Like the others, he tells Dante his story. In 1285, uh, Alberigo uh, so invited his political opponents. Why did, my hand wants to do this. Every, it's so fucking annoying. Every time I try and speak in an Italian accent, my right hand goes up, my fingers come together like an asshole. Uh, <laughs> And anyway, in 1285, Alberigo invited his political opponents, who happened to be his brother and his nephew, to a banquet. Then Alberigo's men murdered them both. And then Dante finds out that this Alberigo fellow is somehow still alive. Like, as, you know, this is happening, the dude's actually still up there on earth. And then Alberigo explains that a living person's soul can fall into hell, can fall into Ptolemya before they actually die. And up on earth, a demon inhabits their body until the body's natural death. The message here. Keep your eye on your grandparents. Is Nana Nana? Or is she a soulless fucking demon wearing Nana skin like a cheap Nana suit? You gotta stab her and find out. JK, don't do that. Please don't do that. No, the message here is that some crimes are so bad, the afterlife comes for the soul before the body's even cold, then throws it in the frozen basement. Maybe here Dante is just trying to explain how if you're not careful, you can become so bad you're not even human anymore. You're demonic. I'm sure people who've listened to the majority of the serial killer episodes here can relate to that. Or maybe Dante, who in exile has to stay uh, as a guest a lot in you know different people's homes. Maybe he just really wants to be treated better by his fucking host. So he makes being a bad host one of the worst sins imaginable. I feel like, again, this says more about Dante than it does about some Christian-based ver- vision of hell. Uh, round four, named Judeca after Judas Iscariot, the apostle who betrayed Jesus. In Canto 34, Dante follows Virgil into Judeca into the lowest depths of hell. As they enter the ring, Virgil says, the banners of the king of hell draw closer. Dante immediately notices that, uh, uh, Dante immediately notices that unlike other parts of hell, Judeca is completely silent. All of the sinners here, fully encapsulated in ice, distorted, twisted into every conceivable position, entirely immobilized. Traitors to their benefactors are trapped here. 
The duo quickly realize that it's impossible to talk with any of them, so they move on to the center of hell, a hu- the bottom of the funnel. A huge mist-shrouded form lurks ahead, and Dante approaches it. It's the three-headed giant Lucifer, the end boss of all end bosses. Plunged waist deep into the ice where he fell when God hurled him down from heaven. And Dante describes him. He had three faces, one in front blood red. Then another two that just above the midpoint of each shoulder joined the first. And at the crown, all three were reattached. The right looked somewhat yellow, somewhat white. The left in its appearance was like those who come from where the Nile descending flows. Probably... Probably should have picked music that was a little less lute-based and darker in tone. I would have written this all a little differently, right? Maybe something like, to be to make it fair, I should probably play the same music. The devil is a monster with three heads, yo, and all of them suck. So don't kill a rape, be a good host, you know. Don't be a schmuck. Or one of those heads will eat you dead and you'll be stuck in the ninth level of hell forever, you silly bad boy fuck. I mean, come on. Admittedly, not my best work there, but it did rhyme better than Dante's. So poetry-wise, probably poetry experts would say I did a better job. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, what the three faces of Satan symbolize uh, has been up for debate for hundreds of years. Most people agree that the symbolism of three is a bastardization of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Satan is sort of like a reverse God, impotent, ignorant, full of hate, in contrast to the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving nature of God. It seems weird that the God who let all these sinners be tortured for eternity is considered all loving. Remember that Dante thinks God's punishment for these sinners is a courtesy to them. Uh, Agree to disagree here, Dante. Never really a courtesy to be tortured, I don't think. I don't think anyone who's ever been tortured for any reason has ever thought, thank you. Thank you for this great courtesy. Oh, this feels fitting. Uh, Satan is frozen here, punished because he wanted to be as powerful as God. I don't really understand that. Like, what's the big, who cares what he, he wanted that? Right? God's all-powerful. Why is he threatened by Satan or anybody? I'm sure I'm missing an important point here. Uh, Satan was the first sinner who paved the way for the punishments faced by all the rest as the crash of his body in hell excavated the underworld in which the damned are now held. Way to go, Satan, you fucking dick. You ruined everything. Uh, Satan can't talk here in the lowest realm of hell. He was given the opposite of what he wanted, stuck in place with no power, no voice, no authority. In one of his mouths is Judas who betrayed Christ and in the other two are Cassius and Brutus who betrayed Caesar. We already went over, you know, what was going on there? These fuckers get gnawed and gnashed on for the rest of time. Virgil and Dante, after witnessing Satan himself, begin their escape from hell by clambering down Satan's ragged fur feet first. Virgil tells Dante to hold on to him as he climbs down Satan's back, waiting for a moment when the wings are open so they can have a safe passage below. When they reach Satan's genitalia, not kidding, <laughs> the poets ride down the final river of hell, uh, the river of forgetfulness known as the Leth. Oh, I should have got a pronunciation guide for that. Dante wrote here, When we had reached the point at which the thigh revolves, just at the swelling of the hip, my guide, with heavy strain and rugged work, reversed his head to where his legs had been and grappled on the hair as one who climbs. I thought that we were going back to hell. Hold tight, my master said. He panted like a man exhausted. It is by such stairs that we must take our leave of so much evil. Oh my heck! Just repelling down Satan's pubes. What an adventure. Not every day you get to traverse your way down the devil's ball hair, you know? Dante doesn't explain Satan's uh, genitalia in any detail. It's too bad. Would have been fun if he and Virgil would have, uh, you know, like springboarded off of Satan's pecker into purgatory or something. Maybe he pulled a triple gainer as they dove out of hell. Uh, Dante and Virgil go past Satan's balls or lack thereof. Some think, by not mentioning his nuts, 
Dante was implying that Satan doesn't have any balls. And they pass through the center of the universe, uh, through gravity, from the northern hemisphere to the land of the southern hemisphere's ocean, all these kind of crazy concepts for the 14th century. Virgil's pumped about the trip between hemispheres, explains a bunch of nonsensical physics to Dante, gets a little weird. Finally, Virgil climbs through a hole in the central rock, turning around. Dante's afraid that Virgil's want to go, was going to want to go back through hell. But both of the poets now find themselves on their feet, standing on the other side of the world, having passed through the midpoint of Earth. They can see Satan's legs on one side, his body still frozen in the ice above. Uh, without pausing to rest, the poets make the long journey to the other side of the world where they are delivered through a round opening into the world under the stars. Uh, they emerge from hell on Easter morning, just before sunrise. And many have expressed their disappointment over this anticlimactic end with Lucifer. Why, why not an end boss fight? Why didn't he dick dive? Because that's God's job to, to fight Satan, not to dick dive. And God already punished Lucifer. Uh, from here, Dante would move forward to two more large poems about the afterlife in search of Beatrice. First to purgatory, then to heaven. This is the end of Dante's Inferno, the opening third of the Divine Comedy, which we were tasked by our space lizards to analyze. Check out the entire Divine Comedy to see how the story unfolds. So what the fuck was this whole journey really supposed to mean anyway? Why take this hell tour? The primary themes of Inferno have been pretty much agreed upon by most literary critics and scholars. They're supposed to be the uh, perfect nature of God's justice, evil as the contradiction of God's will, and the nature of storytelling. Let's start with the perfect nature of God's justice. The inscription over the gates of hell in Canto 3, abandon all hope, you who enter here explicitly state that God was inspired to make hell because he sought justice, according to these scholars. He was sick of humanity's shit. He exists, or hell exists, to punish sin, and the suitability of hell's specific punishments testify to the divine perfection that all sin violates. This is the crux of Dante's message. God is good. He's so good, he has the most perfect ways to make you feel super bad forever, so try really hard to be good, okay? Somewhere in this weird, arguably horrific, angry dad lesson is supposed to be some sort of balance. Sinners receive punishment in perfect proportion to their sin, and to pity their suffering is to demonstrate a lack of understanding of God's love. I don't know, but that's what it's supposed to be. Or in Dante's Inferno, sinners receive punishment in perfect proportion to how much their particular sin chapped Dante's ass. Uh, the next theme, a little more complicated. I thought that was pretty complicated. It's this, uh, the next theme is the idea that evil is the contradiction of God's will. Basically, Dante says that there's no objective baseline for good or bad, just the ever-changing will of God right? The whole mysterious ways thing. Accepting a bribe can land you in the eighth circle. Murderer, you know, you go to the sixth circle. Uh, how does Dante come to conclusions like that? Well, according to scholars, while murder is much more disruptive to organized society, Dante illustrates that God doesn't care about human beings' happiness or the harmony of life on earth as much as he cares about, you know, God's will in heaven. So I guess it just sucks for us down here. Using this logic, Dante considers violence less evil than fraud. Of the two sins, he feels that fraud is in greater opposition to God's will or something like that. I should say that Inferno is not a philosophical text. Its intention is not to think critically about the nature of evil, but rather to teach and reinforce existing church doctrines at the time that Dante found to be relevant and important. It's basically one long text that ends with Dante saying, as God, in regard to God's punishments, well, I don't know, because I said so, right? Just don't worry about it. Uh, the third theme of the Inferno is the idea of storytelling as a way to achieve immortality. There's no hiding how proud of himself Dante is having written this poem. Several shades in Inferno ask the character Dante to retell their names and stories on earth upon his return. They hope perhaps that the retelling of their stories will allow them to live on in people's memories, maybe even offer some improvement to their state. Dante as a character doesn't always do that, but the poet Dante was all about advancing his own legend. And he did with this book. Dante's divine comedy was partially a big flex. 
a big, oh, you think you can write an epic poem? Bitch, I can write the most epic of all epic poems. Get ready for more ancient mythological allusions and contemporary political references than you can fucking handle, all intricately woven into an epic hero's journey, motherfucker. You know, there's a little bit about that. And where did Dante head on uh, with his next uh, journey? After Inferno, Dante makes his way to purgatory in the purgatorio section. In Roman Catholic doctrine, purgatory is the place or state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners who are paying for their sins before going to heaven. Some forms of Western Christianity, particularly within Protestantism, deny its existence. Uh, the Catholic Church holds that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, undergo the process of purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. This is where praying for your dead relatives comes in handy, you know, because praying for them can expedite that process. There's no real concrete, uh, you know, this is what it means 100% scriptural basis for purgatory, by the way. Mostly just he uh, heavy interpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. In the Purgatorio, Dante and Virgil keep going on their journey. They climb through different levels of purgatory. They meet more historical figures and encounter more heavy symbolism. The theme of the work changes as Dante stops seeing souls that need to be punished and starts seeing other characters as pilgrims on a quest of spiritual purification. This next section offers a more sympathetic and psychological view of sinners, like in a passage when Virgil explains that sin ultimately derives from distortions of love. Dante realizes, as obedient Christians tend to do, that life is a pilgrimage and that he must learn to reject the deceptions of the temporal world. Uh, I'm sure he's thinking about that a lot as he's been exiled, too. At the end of the section, uh, Virgil says Dante's ready to keep going on his own. Dante reaches a beautiful forest where a woman named Matilda explains that Dante is in the earthly paradise or the Garden of Eden in which human beings were originally created and lived in innocence. And then in a stream, Matilda washes away Dante's memories of his sin so he can now proceed to heaven. Then Dante arrives in paradise or heaven in the Paradiso, the final section, the third part of the Divine Comedy. In heaven, Dante and Beatrice finally get to spend time together, although she appeared briefly at the end of Purgatorio. Fourteen different cantos are dedicated to Dante and Beatrice fucking the shit out of each other in this final chapter. Uh, there's, uh, there's verses like, uh, Beatrice, oh Beatrice, I journey through hell to suck in your sweet taste. Beatrice, oh Beatrice, hop on over yonder and sit on this stalker's face. You know, like, there's that kind of stuff. That's a direct quote. JK, uh, be gone, Sophina. You're gonna get me stuck in one of the lower levels of Dante's hell. Uh, no, Beatrice, who's taught by, or thought of by scholars to represent theology, actually, outlines the structures of the universe for Dante. Okay, so maybe she represents theology, or maybe, you know, he just uh, wrote this all about a girl in the end. Paradise is depicted as a series of concentric spheres surrounding the earth. Dante loves circles and rings. Within these circles, Dante can discern the human form of Christ. The Divine Comedy ends with Dante's flash of understanding about how the circles fit together and how humanity relates to divinity, but Dante can't describe it to the reader. Fucking bummer. Easy, easy cop out there. Wonder how many pieces of parchment he burned through trying to describe it before he finally just went, ah, fuck it. I've been working on this damn book for over a decade. Time to wrap it up. God bestows the answer to basically the meaning of life that we don't get to hear upon Dante in a flash of light and Dante's soul is finally at one with God's. But already my desire and my will were being turned like a wheel all at one speed by the love which moves the sun and the other stars. And that's the gist of all of it. We could have spent many additional hours digging into more of the details, but I, I felt like, you know, we gave a good, what, two and a half-ish hour overview of this part. Now, interesting question time. So how much did Dante influence the modern Christian view of hell with his inferno? How much of our vision of hell comes from Dante 
and other non-biblical authors and how much comes from the Bible itself. Hell, as most of us Westerners think of it today, actually is not definitively mentioned in the Bible. Four different words in the Bible have been translated into the English word hell. The Hebrew word sheol, the Greek words Hades and Tartarus, and Gehenna, a Hebrew word transliterated into Greek. But none of those words necessarily meant what we now think of as hell. None of those terms translate, you know, perfectly to eternal fiery punishment at all. How crazy is that? My Pentecostal pastor grandfather, not Papa Ward, uh, Grandpa Bill, seemed to have really missed that back when he was preaching. Uh, it literally never scripturally describes hell as we think of it today. Interpreted, yes, but interpreted, I think, influenced by literary non-biblical works. Within scripture, interesting to track how the conception of the afterlife has changed over the centuries. Ancient Jews did not believe in hell because they didn't believe there was any soul to be punished. They traditionally did not believe the soul could exist at all apart from the body. On the contrary, for them, the soul was more like the breath. The first human God created, Adam, began as a lump of clay. Then God breathed life into him, Genesis 2-7. Adam remained alive until he stopped breathing. Then it was dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Ancient Jews thought that was true for us all. When we stopped breathing, our breath didn't go anywhere. It just stopped. To refer to this, ancient Jews used the term sheol in the Hebrew Bible, a term scholars used to refer to the Old Testament and a few other important Hebrew religious texts. Then into English, sheol has been translated as grave and transliterated into Hades. And it is generally agreed that both sheol and Hades do not typically refer to a place of eternal punishment, but to the grave, the temporary abode of the dead or the underworld. Six feet under is what it may just refer to, a hole in the ground. But Jews began to change their views over time. About 200 years before Jesus, some Jewish thinkers began to believe that there had to be something beyond death, a kind of justice to come. This view of the coming resurrection dominated the view of Jewish thought in the days of Jesus, also the view he himself embraced and proclaimed throughout the New Testament. So what did Jesus think about hell? In traditional English versions, Jesus does occasionally seem to speak of hell. For example, in his warnings in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who calls another a fool or who allows their right eye or hand to be or or who allows their right eye or hand to sin will be cast into hell. Matthew 5, 22, 29, 30. But the word Jesus actually used was not hell, but was, you know, in Hebrew was Gehenna. The term originally did not refer to a place of eternal torment, but to a notorious valley just outside the walls of Jerusalem, believed by many Jews at the time to be the most unholy, God-forsaken place on earth, on actual earth. A place where, according to the Old Testament, ancient kings sacrificed some of their children to foreign gods by burning them alive. Also in the ancient world, whether Greek, Roman, or Jewish, the worst punishment a person could experience after death was to be denied a traditional burial. And many scholars think that Jesus developed this view into a repugnant scenario. Corpses of those excluded from the kingdom would be unceremoniously tossed into the most desecrated dumping ground on the planet. That was hell. This valley. Literally hell on earth. Jesus did not say souls would be tortured there, but that they simply would no longer exist. Other passages, however, do seem to suggest that maybe Jesus did believe in hell as we know it today. Uh, most notably, Jesus speaks of all nations coming for the last judgment in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. He says that the wicked, those who refuse to help those in need, are sent to eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Still, though, translation problems. Does this verse point towards a hell similar to Dante's or does it mean the wicked will be buried in the cursed land where idolaters used to burn their children in Gehenna? Uh, the closest we may get to the biblical hell being a physical place is in Luke verse 26, which describes a great chasm between he heaven and Hades that is set in place so that no one can cross from one side to the other. Still there, hell, you know, very vague idea. 
Uh, also described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 13, 50, and a place that is down or below the earth in Psalms and Proverbs, kind of, once again, translation problems. In addition to hell, uh, a grave is also below the earth, sent to hell, or just dead and buried, uh, no longer possessing breath. Even if hell is, you know, what is being referenced in all these verses, the hell spoke of still at best a vague concept, certainly not what is often described from an evangelical viewpoint. For example, the primary evangelical organization in the UK the Evangelical Alliance produced a report in the year 2000 entitled "The Nature of Hell." It was not an excuse me. It was not an unsubstantial document. It had 22 conclusions. Here's the thrust of their argument: Hell is separation from God. Hell involves severe punishment, though Scripture used is often metaphorical. Hell is a conscious experience of rejection and torment. Hell involves degrees of punishment and suffering in hell related to the severity of sins committed on earth. Hell is a realm of destruction, which could be of actual existence of individual sinners or to the quality of their relationship with God. Hell is eternal, though not necessarily as a ceaseless conscious experience. So did you catch that part about hell involving degrees of punishment related to the severity of sins on earth? That for sure is a thousand percent Dante. That is also a thousand percent not taken from the Bible. There's no reference of degrees of punishment and suffering in relation to sin, no matter how you might try and translate various words. Uh, the visions of a place beneath us where demons torment the dead in all manner of disturbing ways. That vision comes from the 14th century, not from the first century. It comes from Dante, not from disciples of Christ. Interesting stuff, right? Speaks to how powerfully Dante's influence can still be felt seven centuries after his death. Now let's recap. Uh, Dante's Divine Comedy is a poem that has flourished for centuries and is still considered a classic. Powerful symbolism, shocking depictions of life after death have continued to astonish generations for, uh, of readers. Uh, Dante pulled from his life experience in his writing, the loss of his love, Beatrice, his struggles with the Pope and Florentine politics, ultimately his exile. All these themes run through the Divine Comedy and Inferno in particular. The plot, relatively simple, right? Dante loses his way in a dark forest, comes across the Roman poet Virgil, who guides him to the nine circles of hell. The punishments get more intense as they go, from thrashing around with other souls and lakes of shit, to walking around flaming deserts, to having your head permanently twisted around 180 degrees. Along with that is the constant torture inflicted on the punished by Satan's minions, a whole cast of centaurs, giants, demons, and serpents. As a literary work, Dante's Inferno is many things. Propaganda for the church, Dante's personal shit list of Florentine politicians he didn't like, big rant against the uh, corrupt papacy, a walkthrough of the many, many ways in which people can have the shit beat out of them, an evaluation of evil, what are the worst things a person can do. The punishment people suffer in Inferno is disturbing and surreal equal to anything you might come across in a modern horror film. Uh, for more than 100 years, it has been a staple in schools and universities and has continued to provide uh, inspiration to poets and artists in our time. It's one of the texts that shapes how we think about hell and popular imagination. And I don't know why I said for more than 100 years. Uh, I guess in America, it's been a staple uh, for more than 100 years. How would you structure your hell if you wrote something akin to Inferno? That's what I was thinking about after uh, all this. Who would you place in the lowest levels? Who would you base punishments on? Uh, you know, or what would you, excuse me, base punishments on? Would you base it on what affected you personally? Or would you try and be more objective, really trying to think about the worst things a person can do? Uh, would a child murderer be placed in a lower circle than an adult murderer? Would an architect of genocide be placed in a lower circle than a serial killer? Who's placed in the very lowest level? Who is Satan gnashing his teeth on? Would everyone stay in hell forever or for different lengths of time, depending on what they did, 100 years for every murder, 1,000, 10,000? Or would you not send anyone to hell? Would you destroy hell? Do you not believe in hell as a concept? I, or would you not you know, want hell to exist? 
I think examining Dante's Inferno is a good way to examine the concept of crime and punishment. What are the crimes and what are the appropriate punishments in your worldview? I'm not sure who I'd punish the most. Out of the dirtbags we've sucked, you know, my brain, for whatever reason, goes immediately to Joseph Duncan, Bob Perdella, David Parker Ray, the toy box killer, put them in the lowest pits. But why did their names jump out, right? Are they any worse than Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, Richard Ramirez, Ed Kemper, so many others? Should Hitler be punished more than, say, John Wayne Gacy? Uh, who should be punished more, Cambodia's Pol Pot or the three Pashas of the Young Turks? It's really kind of tough the more you think about it. You know, what are the most evil acts one can commit? I don't know. When, when do you max out on evil? I don't think it's with the guys who betrayed Julius Caesar. I'll say that, but I don't know who it should be. Maybe you do. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Dante's Inferno is one of the most influential pieces of literature of all time. Together with the other two parts of the Divine Comedy, it helped unify and popularize the Italian vernacular language, and it gave Christian values its own epic poem. Number two, Dante Alighieri, the author and narrator of Inferno, lived in tumultuous times at the end of the 13th century in Florence, when being in politics meant you could be on top of the world one day and exiled with your property seized, or worse, you know, burned alive, the next. After being exiled himself, Dante used Inferno as his personal shit list of people he thought should be in hell, including several popes. Number three, each of the punishments doled out to the sinners is directly related to the kind of sins they committed in life. Shove cake and candy in your face in this life, eat shit forever in the afterlife. Number four, Dante climbed down Satan's pubes to get out of hell. Just wanted to make sure you didn't forget about that part. Number five, new info. I love this. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, thought to be a modern reimagining of Dante's Inferno. Not even kidding. Think about it. Willy Wonka's tour through the candy factory. He and the kids take a unique riverboat ride where Gene Wilder goes off on a monologue that could easily fit in Dante's Inferno. Is the magical chocolate-making facility actually hell? Wonka's words seem to describe a descent into hell as he says, are the fires of hell glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? There are more comparisons. As we learned in Inferno, the different levels of hell have punishments that reflect various sins. In Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the kids are punished in a way that relates to their respective sin. For example, Augustus Gloop eats enormous amounts of chocolate on the reg. In the factory, he almost drowns in a river of it. Or Violent Beauregard, who commits theft for stealing gum and is promptly turned into a blueberry, her identity stolen. At the end of Dante's Inferno, Dante climbs up and ascends out of hell, you know, climbs up Satan. Well, I guess, you know, just, yeah. In Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, Charlie ascends uh, off into the sky in a glass elevator. Is Willy Wonka Virgil? Is he Satan? He is Charlie's guide. Uh, many, many, probably not Satan, I guess be more Virgil. Many modern works owe a lot to Dante and his comedy, actually. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, authors of two of the most important 20th century works, Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, have expressed their indebtedness, inde indebted, there we go, indebtedness, not, in, not indebted, not indebitableness, indebtedness to Dante. I'm gonna get out of here. Time suck, top five takeaways. Dante's Inferno has been sucked. That epic poem turned into an epic suck. I don't think we'll be doing a, a suck this long again anytime soon. I say that. I hope not. <laughs> it's too many words. It's too many words, but I hope they were words that were fun to listen to. Good luck uh, ever viewing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory the same way ever again. Uh, and you're welcome for the, the poetry that I put together. You know, I could have just, I could have published it in a book. I'm sure it would have sold really well. But I just, you know, let's put it in here. 
Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for uh, all their help in making time. So, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, scriptkeeper Zach Flannery, Sophie Factsource with Sevens, Bidelixer, Logan, The Art Warlock, Keith, running badmagicmerch.com, working on our socials with Liz Hernandez. Uh, and again, new and improved customer service email for badmagicmerch.com is store at badmagicproductions.com. Uh, thanks to those of you who have joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez, Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Thanks to Beefsteak and our moderators on Discord. Uh, easy link to Discord from the TimeSuck app. Thanks to all you space lizards, space lizards playing TimeSuck trivia on the app early into round eight with 1477 points. Bailey96 Hannah uh, in the lead. Uh, next week on TimeSuck, are you ready to head down under? Throw some shrimps on the barbie, wrestle some sharks, get stung by some jellyfish? Even more importantly, are you ready to learn what the fuck a Brumby is? Next week on Time Suck, we head to Australia, specifically Western Australia, go back to a tough few years in its long history when World War I veterans returned from combat, were given plots of land to farm by the government only to have their plans fucking destroyed by emus. Not kidding. This powerful bird, the only bird with calf muscles, which is pretty creepy. Today, numbers around 60,000 or 70,000. That's with efforts made to curb their reproduction and limit the land they can roam on. Back in the 1930s, was not uncommon to see giant flocks of emu called mobs that would number around 20,000. Fucking 20,000 emus, emus all working together, some crazy gang. And those emus, they loved to eat the wheat crops that the farmers were growing. And they would fight them for it. Big, aggressive birds. They love anything shiny. They can kick at you. They can scratch you with their talons. They're more like a dinosaur than a bird. And Aussie farmers getting, you know, kicked by these fucking modern velociraptors decided they weren't going to lose their farms without a fight. And they grabbed some machine guns. The government joined in, sent out a mission of three military men plus a camera crew to document the Great Emu War. Emus were planned to be killed in the thousands. Things did not go as planned. Did the emu win the Great Emu War? You'll have to tune in next week for, a, you know, a more lighthearted and just crazy episode to find out. Uh, now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Going to start off with an Israel Keys update from a few weeks ago. I mispronounced the name of a town only two hours from here that I've been to. Damn it. Top Shelf Lizard's uh, Sack. Sham Slam. Space is her name, not real name. Uh, shares this and so much more. He writes, Dear Mother Suckmaster, was super psyched, disheartened to hear you discuss the town I live in. During the Israel Keys suck, Colville, Washington. First off, it's not Colville. It's pronounced Colville. I know that. I just forgot. Uh, there's absolutely no way you'd know that unless you ask someone. Don't sweat it. Anyway, thought you should know that some even scarier things, or thought you should know about some even scarier things regarding the Israel cult shit. They still have a compound around here on the Columbia River and even own a winery. So yeah, I'm, and I'm guessing here this is uh, people who were part of that, excuse me, that church that they were involved in. Uh, they are There are about seven, eight families up there all with the last name Israel, and they are all way anti-government, have super weird hippie names like honesty, fortitude, confidence, victory. <laughs> One dude even named his kid success, and it seems that kid has done everything conceivably possible to live that name down. He has never held down a job, he's constantly in trouble with the law, and has wrecked more cars in county and private property than is normal for even your average screw-up. He's been tasered a few times. <laughs> Jeez. Spends, uh, spent many, many uh, nights in county lockup. They won't keep him in there, though, because he's shithouse crazy. People around here still talk about the Keys family and all that weirdness. I asked around about it and most people were just like, that was a weird fucking time, man. Just fucking weird. Being born and raised in Spokane, I never really heard about it, but it's strange to hear about it after all this time. Also wanted to share a Cummins Law experience. That is interesting that they're still talking about it up there. 
Also wanted to share a Cummins Law experience that should dispel any doubts that the government has you on record, albeit completely unintentionally. I work in federal law enforcement up here in Stevens County. For the sake of safety of both myself and my job, I'll decline to say which federal agency, but we're a big one. Anyway, one night I was listening to the Yahim Kroll suck, of course, in my work truck, when I suddenly got a text from one of my partners, also working that night. He said, dude, I don't know what in the flying fuck you're listening to, but you've been uh, hot micing that shit for the last 10 minutes and the radio ladies are really upset. Sure enough, the poor radio dispatcher ladies had been subjected to tales of peanut butter and showbiz for the better part of 10 minutes. My leg had been accidentally pressing the radio transmit button next to me and I hadn't felt it because my wallet was in my cargo pocket. Those poor ladies. Anyhow, I got called into my boss's office the next day and he asked me what in the hell had happened that night. I told him uh, what I was listening to and he just laughed and asked me, Yamo time suck. Sweet. So while that could have really fucked me, it ended up uh, turning out okay. Also, all of our radio transmissions are recorded by some nerd think tank in D.C. So take heart and know that your mushmouth's sultry voice is immortalized digitally in some archives somewhere, and they know about Kroll's deviance in ways they never wanted to. If you read this on the suck, please exclude my name, but just know that you've got some real fans up here. Managed to get most of my shift listening to Time Suck. And if you could give a shout out to Charlie 16, Charlie 33, and Charlie 22, they'll know exactly who you mean and we'll get a kick out of it. By the way, just to make this extra creepy, you and I were born on exactly the same day, actually lived in Spokane at the same time while you were at GU. So yes, we should get an apartment together. JK, you're the best. Been a huge fan since Crazy Capital F. Still waiting for the merch store to make those greeting cards. Hope to see you back in the Spokane Comedy Club soon. Our best to your family and everyone in the Suck Dungeon. Really glad this email was so long. Your faithful spaces are sham slam. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Mystery, mystery slammer. Uh, I appreciate that information about Colville. Uh, interesting that there's some compound up there currently somehow related yeah, to that, uh, Christian identity church, the keys belong to yet. I'm sure the locals have not forgot about all the key stuff and, uh, glad you didn't get fired. Now for another true crime update. Super sucker. Ryan Moore has reason to believe my dad may be the Zodiac killer. I love how this is starting to spiral out. He writes. So with all the talk of Dan's dad being a serial killer, I was wondering if he really could be a serial killer. So after about 30 seconds of searching for stuff online, I'm pretty sure he's a Zodiac killer. First off, he was presumably actually alive in the late 60s, early 70s. Fucking sure was. Second off, we weren't there with him during that time frame. So maybe he was out murdering people and sending letters. Yep. Again, I sure shit doesn't know, don't know where he was that time. Third, the pictures from a couple weeks ago where he was in all the crime scenes uh, on Instagram and Facebook do look suspiciously like the composite sketch of the Zodiac. I couldn't agree more. I've attached a photo of the two side by side. Both are white males with glasses and a similar haircut. Mm-hmm. Fourth, maybe when Dan was a child, he was spoken to in ciphers like the Zodiac killer would write, which is the cause of his mush mouth. Exactly. Seems pretty rock solid to me, Ryan Moore. Thank you, Ryan. Right, for putting more pieces together. Gonna have to put that in my file. We're gonna we're gonna fucking get this son of a bitch one of these days. He's gonna come over to my house to visit, you know, for like Thanksgiving or something. And that's when the SWAT team's gonna grab him. And we're gonna solve a lot of crimes. Can't wait till he hears about all this. I, I want to see how long this goes on before it gets back to him. Now for the first Armenian genocide update, which is not funny. I'm laughing about the previous thing. Uh, coming in from Meat Sack instructor Catherine Yeager. Catherine writes, "Hey Dan, I just wanted to say thank you for covering the Armenian genocide. I'm a social studies teacher." And uh, on my first day of student teaching, the first thing one student ever said to me was, have you ever heard of the Armenian genocide? May seem like a weird question to ask a teacher, uh, but the student was Armenian-Iranian uh, slash Iranian. I said yes, because I knew it had happened and knew that the Turkish government denied it ever happening. 
But until your podcast, I did not know the details. Now that I do, it puts that question into even greater perspective. This student was almost definitely the descendant of survivors, which after listening to your podcast just awes me that anybody survived that horror. Your episode made me think about her. I hope she's doing okay. She'd be a senior in high school now. Thank you for your show. Thank you for your uh, comedy because it's something my mom likes too. And it's something that we enjoy together. Much love, Catherine. Or AKA K. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that is a very interesting K. Yeah, I'm guessing that your, uh, excuse me, your student, former student, you know, was probably descended of somebody who was heavily impacted by this. The, had, you know, family members who who probably did die. I mean, statistically, odds are. It was crazy. I just talked to another podcast the other day. Um, some people wrote into Sam Tripoli, a friend of mine, about the Armenian genocide episode because Sam is Armenian American. And then he called me and we talked and he talked about how his great grandfather, uh, several of his like great, great uncles, you know, a variety of family members uh, were killed in the Armenian genocide. And that, you know, his, who he's descended from escaped, got out, you know, they made it to Glendale, uh, California. And that's, you know, why he's around is because they were able to escape when one of his family members was very young. Crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, another Armenian genocide update from an Armenian-American meat sack, Oshin uh, Arakelian. Sorry if I'm messing up your last name. Oshin writes, Suckmaster and crew, I just want to take a moment to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for shining a light on the, Ar on the Armenian genocide. I'm a full-blooded Armenian-American descendant from genocide victims and survivors. My great-grandmother's entire family wiped out as Ottoman Turkish soldiers decimated their entire village. She was hidden in a forest at the age of three, was picked up by Russian soldiers, that's fucking crazy, little three-year-old. Given to another Armenian family on their way to neighboring Iran. Uh, if you're interested, I can always expand as her story was, is truly remarkable, filled with unimaginable heartbreak. Uh, on behalf of Armenian space leaders worldwide, like to crown the Suckmaster and all crew honorary Armenians. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles. Thanks again, Oshin. Oh, thank you, Oshin, for sending that in. Man, what a crazy family history you have. Uh, honored to be an honorary uh, Armenian, especially because I'm a huge System of a Down fan. Um, can you get other Ar Armenian Americans to somehow get a petition going to just really guilt trip System of a Down to please make another record? Come on, what are they, do what are they doing? They got time, they're, they're, they can use it to raise more money for Armenian you know, causes. Uh, Serge, just fucking just put your pride aside and work with your former bandmates. Um, but thank you again, Oshin, for sending that in. Uh, heavy stuff. Let's end with some silliness. Super sucker Charles Jenkins got Cummins Law in front of the law. He writes, Cummins Law got me out of a ticket. So he got real lucky. Oh, great prophet and Nimrod. Can't go deep into personal details right now. Just know that shit is a little fucked up for me. I was pulled over on the way to work tonight while listening to the road suck. Uh, I, uh, oh yeah, the truck stop killer. I paused the time suck app when I saw blue lights behind me, went to a sphincter factor of 10. My tags are expired. I don't have a license at the moment. It's a much, much longer story than this one. Just as this awesome, polite officer of the law is getting into my bullshit, my phone decides to broadcast through my car speakers one of your bullshit ads for Captain Whiskerhorn. <laughs> I have an Android and can't hit pause on my lock screen, and my phone decided not to take my thumbprint. For what seemed an agonizingly long time, I'm struggling to put my password on my phone to shut your ridiculous gob up. The look on this cop's face was priceless. He was just done with me. I could have been jailed tonight, but I believe you helped me out with your asinine nonsense. I've been trying to straighten my shit out, but it has been difficult due to certain circumstances. I've never been arrested, have no record. Thanks for keeping it that way. Everything you do is terrible. Worst things I've ever heard. Five out of five stars. Charles Jenkins. Thank you, Charles. I am, what a fucking crazy stroke of luck that was. I, I sincerely do hope that the officer that pulled you over was just so disturbed by the nonsense coming to your speakers. He was just like, I don't, I don't need to deal with this bullshit. This is more paperwork than I want to put together right now. 
and just, you know, let you go. And I hope you get everything straightened out soon. I uh, hope until then the uh, suck continues to be a nice place of escape for you and some amusement. Thank you to everyone uh, for your messages, Charles and everyone else, for continuing to listen, for continuing to spread the suck, all the stuff. Hail Nimrod to you all. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. More Bad Magic Productions content throughout the week. If you're interested, uh, Campfire Horror with Scared to Death late Tuesday nights. So many laughs with Is We Dumb Wednesdays at noon Pacific time. Also, if you want less darkness, little inspiration nuggets every Monday through Friday uh, uh, with incredible feats. This comes out first thing early in the morning. Please don't try to descend into and then out of hell this week with an ancient Roman poet as your guide. You might not escape like Dante did. Stay up here on the surface where it's safe and just keep on sucking. You know, it's pretty easy. And in the fourth pit of the eighth circle of hell, the sorcerers wanted with their heads ripped around on their necks, facing backwards so they could never see the future as the damned wandered endlessly through a fiery pit of nothing but darkness and desolation and stuff. Does this help me go to sleep? I'm, I'm kind of thirsty. Can I get some water? No, no. In the fifth pit of eighth circle thing... Water drinkers get fucking pipes shoved up their asses and leaked of their fluids for their greedy, disgusting, quenching of needs and things. That's right. I remember now. Thank you. Good night. Good night, buddy. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.